Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes, check it out, and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Yosef Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just want to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Evan Pikin. Evan is a coach, physiologist, and educator at the Training Think Tank HQ in Atlanta, Georgia. He has experience working with athletes on-site and remotely across the US and internationally. He shares his knowledge and training philosophy via the Training Think Tank educational courses, as well as in his own daily writings on his Instagram page, Evan Pikin, which is linked up in the show notes. On this episode, Evan and I discussed a ton of topics. Evan gives us a brief background and introduction. We discuss health versus performance. I asked Evan about his influences. I asked Evan what are the good and not so good things that he currently sees within the physical preparation and sports science professions. And what solutions would he offer for the not-so-good things that he is seeing? I asked Evan to outline his training philosophy. I asked Evan to outline his training system. Here we discuss assessment, programming, and monitoring. I asked Evan to share with us his thoughts on periodization. I asked Evan to give us his thoughts on energy system development. I asked Evan how does he use the MOXIE unit with his athletes. Evan discusses fatigue. I asked Evan about norms with the MOXIE unit. I asked Evan what is the picometer. I asked Evan about categories that he likes to put his athletes into. Here, Evan discusses two general types of athletes that he usually sees. I asked Evan about auto regulation and training. 
I asked Evan what have been the biggest lessons that he's learned so far in his life and career. I asked Evan for his top resources and life advice. We discuss uncertainty, epigenetics, and understanding human behavior. I asked Evan if he only had one year left on planet Earth, how would he spend that year and why? And finally, I asked Evan the big question. If he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an outstanding discussion with Evan. He's an absolute legend, great bloke, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Evan, thank you so much for making time to come speak to me today. I really appreciate it. Just for the listeners who are not familiar who you are, fill us in your background. Right. So I've been involved in strength and conditioning for what, maybe six or seven years now. So a I baby, a baby in the field, a baby, <laughs> baby in chronological age too. Yeah. Um, so I come from a track and field background and a lot of my introduction into this field was really just selfishly trying to improve my own performance in trying to augment that outside of what I was doing with teams. And then after I wasn't competing on a team anymore, just trying to kind of do my own thing and put the pieces together. So going through college, this was just really something I was kind of doing on the side to make some money and just something that was kind of like a personal passion project. And after I'd finished my formal education was kind of starting to work into a master's again and get back into academia, I decided to make the jump and do this full time. So go back a little bit further. So you're, are you from New York originally? Yeah, I'm from uh, Long Island, New York. Yeah. It's funny because again, on the, on the My Muscle Project with uh, Ralph and, um, and Lachlan, uh, you were kind of saying like the difference between uh, growing up in New York and and Atlanta is like, you know, New York's like, get the fuck out of my way. I have shit to do. (laughs) <laughs> which I was like that, that's such a good way of describing it I can imagine even though you need to clarify what part of New York you're from because I have a friend from New York and she's always like upstate very different oh yeah that's like completely different country because yeah. it's so funny if you if you say New York to most like people here in Ireland like or people in Europe they automatically just think Manhattan fucking mm-hmm. uh, Statue of Liberty World Trade Centers you know what I mean fucking the 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 New York Knicks and the fucking Yankees that's what they think about straight away and it's just like they don't think about farms and cows you know which is like upstate New York and land yeah but uh, yeah go back a little bit further so track and field you said but growing up did you play a lot of sports um and what kind of got you into fitness as well like you know I know you said there you kind of a bit selfish and you wanted to um, like get your own performance up in terms of trying to feel but as a kid like did you play many sports were you kind of always into sport and then like how did you really get into fitness yes yeah, so i played a lot of sports growing up but it was never really something that like really took up all my time like i played soccer i played lacrosse i did martial arts as a kid but it was never like my main thing i was really into skateboarding most of my life growing up so that's kind of like my jam for most of my childhood Um, As I got older, though, I started wrestling and I ended up doing cross country to get ready for wrestling season. And for whatever reason, I just found out I was good at running. Like I just had a natural talent for it. So from the time I was about 15 or 16, that just became like my life was just competing in track and cross country and ended up getting a lot of injuries, getting burnt out. Um... I know before we had hopped on this call, we had started talking a little bit about the parasympathetic overtraining pieces. Yeah. 
that kind of took over my life for a period and it really started to um kind of like fuck with my health and fuck with my psychology yeah so, get, 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 in, get into that if you want a little bit because it could be people now i know on my podcast people are familiar with the term parasympathetic but maybe some people aren't familiar with what's he mean by yeah, i got into this parasympathetic state yeah so a lot of times when people think of overtraining you think of someone who's like chronically stressed and like super wired up um and you think of being in a sympathetic dominant state is a bad thing and people always talk about oh you want athletes to be in parasympathetic state all the time and that's definitely true. You do want people to be at like a healthy baseline in that like rest and digest mode people call it. But when you swing too far in that direction, that carries just as much dysfunction as sympathetic overtraining. So what that looks like for me, I would basically be a zombie 24 seven, um, would be falling asleep all the time. Even standing up, I would fall asleep, uh, would be freezing cold. It'd be the middle of July in New York. It's 95 degrees and I'd be wearing like a flannel, a hoodie and just like shaking from being so cold. Yeah. And it takes a long time to get out of that. And I really didn't know at the time, but it would take me even three, four, five years to actually recover from that. Fuck. So a lot of my education and training was really about trying to find a way to balance health and performance. Because at the time I was convinced that you can't be healthy and be a high level athlete. And talking to a lot of people that I respected in the field that were much older than me, it seemed like a lot of them had the same opinions. I heard a very respectable coach in the CrossFit realm say to me, maybe in around 2011 or 12, that you can't have a CrossFit athlete that doesn't have like complete hormonal dysfunction and HPA axis uh, dysregulation. And that was something that really stuck out to me at the time because in my mind, I do come from a scientific background. If that is the case, my instant reaction was just, well, maybe you're just not doing it right. So I became obsessed with trying to find a way to balance health and performance and really look at the body as a holistic system. If we can't drive adaptation without compromising health, I think that's just because we're missing a piece of the puzzle and we're just not doing it correctly, not because health and performance are these diametrically opposed things. That's definitely something I wanted you to expand a little more on because I would be of the sort of mindset that you can't be an elite performer and have optimal health. Now, obviously, there's a spectrum, like, and you do need a certain level of health for performance. But, like, do you, do you think it is possible to have both, like, attain high-level performance and be very, very healthy? Or do you think it's more spectral than that? You do need a certain level of it. Like, it's not like, it's not like every elite performer is fucked up completely in terms of their health. Like, they all have a certain level of it. But, like... Like, like to reach like ultimate levels of a high athletic performance, you wouldn't be able to reach ultimate levels of high of health and wellness at the same time. What, what would you take me on that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with that to an extent. Like, I'm never going to say absolutely that an athlete is going to be the healthiest person because I just don't think that's true. I think yeah. inherently the type of training that you need to do to be an athlete, it's not great for your body. The amount of food that you need to eat to be an athlete not yeah. great for your body long term. But I do think if you really, I don't like using the word like optimize people's health because it's kind of like a bullshit yeah, term. Yeah, it's a bollocks term. Yeah. I know but, I said it there, but it's just kind of like, you know, you know, you know what I was getting at. No, yeah, yeah. I knew what you were getting at. I'm more saying because what I'm about to say, I don't want someone to be like, oh, well, he said this because yeah, yeah. get taken out of context. But as always, you, as always. But Evan yeah. said. 
it's like the whole limits of language. It's like if someone says something and you take it to mean something completely different, it does something great for you. It's like, well, did that person do something great for you or did you just think it did? Yeah. It's yeah. like a whole weird philosophy behind that. But regardless, um, I don't even remember what the fuck I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, so wait, if yeah. You really, health, and health and performance, yeah. If you really dial in health in a lot of ways, I think actually getting athletes to adapt isn't all that difficult. Um, I think a lot of times if we're doing, say, 100 units of training, just arbitrary number, maybe 40 to 50 units of that actually bring us closer to the goal. And then the other 50 to 60 units of that, that's just driving fatigue in the athlete for no reason. So I think if you kind of cut all the bullshit out of training and really just focus on improving the limiter and things that directly improve performance, and then you consolidate all the other stressors and try and drive health in all these different areas, I think it's pretty easy to get athletes to adapt. But it's a matter of like training that trainability. You can't just take an athlete and do that. You almost need to train them to get them to a point where they're actually adaptable and could progress. Yeah, two things that come to my mind are Patrick Vellner and Brent Fikowski. So like, you know the way Vellner, he's, he's a chiropractor and he's in chiropractic school. And like, I've heard him on a few podcasts and a few interviews saying like, there's times where he just can't get all his training that like Michelle program for him. Mm-hmm. And, and like, the question is then, oh, imagine if Vellner went full time. And I kind of think that he'd probably get worse. Because yeah. I, I, I think it's the fact that like he doesn't he, he he actually gets he probably gets more recovery because he actually has to skip some trainings in terms of just mm-hmm. physical recovery. He might have some mental fatigue because he could be stressed about, but he doesn't strike me as one of those guys. But like he probably is so good because of the way his lifestyle is set up in that like he can't get the same amount of training volume in. Like this is just mm-hmm. one top process. Someone could be listening right now going, that's absolute bollocks. But uh, it's just that, like, because obviously Fraser's full time, and like, but he's genetic freak too. But then, like, uh, like look at Farkowski too. Like, he barely does fuck all apparently in the off season, and like, he's brutal in the open. Like, you know, he just about made it. But yeah. like, he is clever in that. He kind of lets I know him. He's real. He's I know him. I know him. I know he struggles, but I know him. I'm, I'm getting my body ready for the right time. And in fairness, he's showed up the last few times. Like, you know, like uh, what was he fourth, second, fourth, and yeah. basically, basically, he was third. And he won the regionals this year, so. But there are two lads that come to my mind in that, like, uh, yeah, kind of, we were getting said like, here, listen, if fucking 40 or 50 units out of 100 gets you the adaptation you want, why the fuck start spending more, like, and then just accumulating fatigue? I do agree with that. Like, it's just a human trait, isn't it? Like, we're, there still is that old sort of subconscious mindset in a lot of us that, like, more is better, even though, like, mm-hmm. most of us know it's quality over quantity. Yeah, I mean, most of us know that, but at the same time, when you see people doing all this other work, I think a lot of it's just insecurity, like the insecurity of hard work. If you fail one year, what are you going to do when you get back to the drawing board? Usually the instant reaction is, oh, I'm going to do more, not I'm going to look at all the shit that I'm not doing or that I am doing and do less. So I think like CrossFit in particular, I think because the sport's so dopaminergic, and people get so addicted to it that drives so much of that compulsion i have athletes where like regional level competitors and some of them only train five times a week 90 minute sessions to get to that level and they're always want to do more and we've gone through periods where i'm like right i'll give you double sessions and if you get better then like fuck yeah we'll stick to this and if you don't let's just stop and some of them do really well with higher volume but i have other ones where every time we increase volume they instantly tank or stall out 
yet they still want to do it. And all the evidence shows that they are high volume athletes. There's something about, I think, the sport of CrossFit, the culture, that people always want to do more, even when the evidence for them as an individual points to the fact that they can't handle that. Yeah, I think again, like it's. I'm reading. Uh, I have it right here, right beside me. Actually, this fucking Bible at the moment. Not the Bible, but it's a Bible-sized book. Behave by Sapolsky. Okay. And uh, so, like, learn a lot, obviously, about the brain and behavior, and obviously, a large part of that is hormones and, and neurotransmitters and whatnot. But yeah, uh, yeah, going back and dopamine. David Pat Davis seems delighted you mentioned that dopaminergic. Took me a while to be able to learn how to say that right. You take the you take the piss out of me for that, Pat. But I learned it. I learned it. But you're so right, like the instant gratification that like you get from training uh, styles like CrossFit is very addictive like for a lot of people. And um, it's funny, Zapolsky talks in that, like, like if you're somebody who's wired where your amygdala is a little more wired than your prefrontal cortex, you're going to be someone that always seeks instant gratification over delayed gratification. He was saying like your prefrontal cortex actually helps with delayed gratification. Which makes sense because like, like everyone that's just knows this. You know, we sit down to do a project and it's like, Okay, sitting down to this project, and I'm on Facebook. Oh, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm looking at messages on my phone. You procrastinate because, like, you, your brain's like, oh, critical thinking's hard. Let's just do something like just gives me a little bit of a hit now. So it's the same too in training too. Like, and you spoke about this in a previous podcast with the boys, and I've just for listeners, if I said the boys, I'm talking with the lads from the Mind Muscle Project, Raf and Lachlan, two fucking sound boys. I haven't actually spoke to them officially just through email, but their fucking their podcast is gas at times. Uh, good podcast, check that out. I'll put it in the show notes. But um, you were saying, um, oh, what was I talking about? Their delay gratification, instant gratification. What? Where was I going with that? Oh, where was, was it? The brain health. Yeah, where I think was we had it? talked about that on the show. We were talking about um, brain health, and we were talking about like, uh, dopamine and delayed gratification versus kind of getting that constant hit. Yeah, but there was something I was going to say there, and I just it, it'll come back to me anyway in a second. But. Uh, yeah, CrossFit athletes. What was it again there? CrossFit. Fucking hell, my brother. That, that just gets me sometimes. I don't know why that happens to me. Anyway, uh, what I want to ask you though, uh, and you can answer this, and when I answer this, that might come back into my mind, is about your influences, Evan. So in terms of personal and professional influences, what would you, who would you say have been your top ones? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with personal just because that one's easy. I feel like this is probably the most boring and cliche I remember. Answer. I remember I was going to say, but keep going. Uh, I remember. I remember. You can keep going. Do you want to jump in with that? Actually, I will. Fuck it. Sorry, yeah, it was Sapolsky. You're right. Sapolsky was yep. talking about if you're more wired with your amygdala than your prefrontal cortex, he was saying that you'll, you'll want instant gratification quicker mm-hmm. and then you won't be able to delay it. No, I know. That is what I did say. What? I had another point. Something you said anyway in the podcast. It'll come. It'll come. <laughs> okay. Go on anyway. Your influence is personal. Yes, I mean, I'll start with personal just because that one's so easy. Really, a lot of that is just my parents, the way I was raised. I know that's like the most boring and cliche answer, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that they've kind of instilled a lot of the things that I do in me. Um, I think the professional might be a little bit more interesting, maybe for some people. I don't know. Um, one of my biggest influences there, my, it's actually my current boss, Max Elhag, the yeah. owner of Training Think Tank. Um, I started doing a mentorship with him maybe four or five years ago. And at the time he had kind of helped me create a system for a lot of the kind of like random thoughts and like training ideas that I had. And even now we definitely don't see eye to eye on everything and we could butt heads on a lot of topics, but he's just someone I've always been able to bounce ideas off of. 
and who really just challenges me on everything that I do. If I bring him a new training concept or an idea, he's never someone who's just going to agree with you and like blow smoke up your ass. He'll just call you out on it and just try and pick everything apart and really force you to um, work through your own beliefs and make sure that they are like very bulletproof. Um, Other professional influences, people that I've definitely spent less time with, but they definitely created some kind of um, like seeds in my mind. Aaron Davis, who I know you've had on the podcast. Yeah. Um, he was a big influence for me. I haven't spent nearly as much time with him and he's more someone who I've kind of like bounced emails back and messages over the years, Mm. but he's done a lot to change how I view energy system training. And he's the one that eventually forced my hand to buy the moxie and start getting into physiological testing. Um, Ben house has also been an influence for me tying in some of those functional medicine concepts into training and how I view the whole adaptive process. Mm. Also someone who's really research driven and even just like reading his stuff or if you talk to him, you could tell the dude knows his shit. And that is something that really inspires me because it makes me want to be someone that does the same thing. And then just other people whose content I've enjoyed and has influenced me that I don't actually know. Um, guys like Eugene Tio someone I um, respect, like coaches like Dan Path, who I know that you actually have a personal relationship, it sounds like. That's someone whose content I've read. So it really just gets into a lot of different fields. Um, I'd be lying if I said all my resources or influence were even in the training sphere, because I feel like in the more recent years, I've just kind of pulled from random fields. But I think that's a pretty good like micro shot of where I come from, I guess. Yeah, pretty solid influences too. Very solid influences. And um, before we hop into some of the topics we're going to talk about, so we're, you know, I want to talk about periodization and energy systems with you particularly. Um, what would you say are the the good and the not so good things that you currently see within the fitness coaching profession? And with the not so good things, what solutions would you offer? Yeah, oh man, that's like a whole can of worms. I mean, if we were to just are we talking like CrossFit in particular? Because that's kind of the field I dance around. Yeah, more yeah if you want to, if you want to stay there, I feel that's fine. I'm just talking about like fitness coaching, like what you see as fitness coaching, and within that domain itself, like what's what what like what's good, and what are not so good, and like with not so good stuff, like what kind of solutions might you offer there? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that I've just been thinking about recently is with the advent of all these new technologies and like all these new concepts, I feel like people are starting to quantify things that don't need to be quantified and trying to like control too much in taking away um, like intuition or auto-regulation or even just being in their own bodies. I feel like it's a tendency to want to get like the newest thing. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love technology. I use Nears and all these different things, but I think a lot of people use technology as an excuse to just simplify the hell out of everything and just strip all of the complexity. So like using things like the whoop, like that HRV band that you see mm-hmm. people wear on their wrist, where if you look into the analytics on it, like probably doesn't do shit. Like people being so adherent to macros and, you have to hit these exact numbers or everything's going to fall apart. Well, the body, um, energy needs change every single day. So you're kind of fooling yourself. Um, things like gut health and the way that people throw around terms related to that. So loosely, my background was in clinical microbiology. So also biochemistry, but the master's work I was doing was in clinical microbiome. You just hear people talk about gut health and the microbiome so simply, and yeah. 
the reality is like i think if i were to speak about that i really can't say i know what the fuck i'm talking about like i spent a year in a lab and basically learned that i knew nothing where you hear these people that have read like one article and they talk about it with such like i don't know the right word like conviction that it fools other people into like pushing this information and thinking they're doing the right thing where in reality you could be creating more dysfunction. So I think the thing that really just bothers me the most is like that illusion of thinking you have the answers and then doing harm with those answers. Because in reality, like we're not doctors, we're not medical professionals. So we should really just be aiming to not do any harm to people and if you don't know something and that information could potentially be dangerous to someone's body, just don't open your mouth or make suggestions, period. So that's <laughs> kind of like the thing that bothers me the most, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what would you offer as a solution there for that? Would just people just becoming more informed, more critical thinking, better filter systems? Yeah, I think just getting like a, like a wider range of education um, and kind of like looking into deeper sources, like instead of reading one article on a topic from someone who read a book that was cited from a textbook, like go to the source and get more education and just yeah. keep more of an open mind and understand that obviously we're all trying to do our best and I'm, it's my job to try and make people better. But at the same time, you have to understand that like, if we are getting people better with our training protocols and all of these things, it's not because we know exactly what we're doing. A lot of it is just making educated guesses and trying to refine that process. I think just looking at training health nutrition with the understanding that like this shit is so complex that we're probably never going to understand it, but we're just doing our best. And if we find things that work, it's because we stumbled upon them instead of presenting these like concrete like end all be all things because i think a lot of that's just driven through like fear in their marketing and that's something that um like in the organization that i'm involved in that's something that i know at least my boss is very opposed to and it's kind of just like my main thing that i don't like with the industry i guess yeah well, what what about what do you like what's what's any good that you say with it yeah, I mean, things that I do like, I, there's definitely way more that I do like about the industry. I know that probably sounded like I'm like a miser and super nihilistic and pessimistic, but I oh, mean... Oh, it's honestly, man. Yeah, I mean, as a whole, like there's so much that's being done great. I don't have to agree with someone's training protocols and principles, but at the end of the day, if you're getting people better and you're not destroying their bodies, like I think that's probably a win. So I see there's tons of people that I don't necessarily agree with, but they're producing good athletes and they're doing things that in like classic literature, like we didn't believe was possible. So I could look at the sport of CrossFit and say, maybe I don't agree with these training systems that people are using, but they're getting athletes to run low five minute miles and squat 450 pounds. 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that's possible. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I think a lot less like bro science, even though I don't always agree with the whole evidence-based fitness mentality, more people are starting to actually look at research and try and understand it. So I think that's awesome. There's all these great things. And I think the industry is progressing as a whole, but I still think we're in an intermediate place where um, maybe we're doing like two good things for every bad thing we do. And that's better than like a one for one or doing two bad things and no good. But yeah, big time.
So before we hop into a periodization, do you maybe just want to give us an overview of your sort of training philosophy? Yeah, so again, like I'm not saying everything that I'm about to say is correct because I've never produced any world-class athletes, but I think we have improved enough people's health and performance simultaneously that I think this might work. So I don't necessarily have a strict like training paradigm or view, but my kind of general idea is at the end of the day, the total quantity of sport specific training that we could do, assuming quality maintains high is really the biggest driver of performance in a sport. But that doesn't mean we could just pile in a ton of training. There's so many different things that need to be taken into account to even accumulate that volume that it could just become like a mindfuck. So we need to look at um, like biomechanics, like bioenergetics, all these different things. So my training view is that we always need to be trying to find the lowest hanging fruit in the limiters and constantly attacking those. So what that ends up looking like in practice is we do everything at all times and we just change the relative volume distribution and frequency of all those traits, depending on what the priority is at any given time. So I never actually plan training out that far in reality. I kind of program in like two week blocks and I just make many adjustments as we go. So I have some general idea of where I want to go with an athlete but most of the progressions in the way that I do things is really just based on the response that I see in real time and how the athlete is functioning. So if we see we're driving performance, but their health is stalling out, well, that's something we need to address. So maybe take a step back and address that low hanging fruit, address whatever health pieces we just created a dysfunction. If um, we see there are some preparatory pieces that are missing, um, maybe it's like a movement issue. And every time we try and push performance too far, that comes back up. Well, then that's something we need to circle back around to. So in my mind, there's only three real types of training. There's developmental work that drives adaptation. There's stimulative work or support work, which maintains adaptation. And then there's structural work that allows for adaptation to be built in the future. And at any given point, training is just an amalgamation of all of those. And the like frequency of each just changes depending on what we want to do at that time. So that's kind of a good overview. Give us a little more now to how, so like when we walk into training think tank HQ, like is there an assessment? And if there is an assessment, is there a movement assessment? And then is there a physical quality assessment in terms of, do you guys then look at certain biomotor bioenergetics um and then from there like how is that what you base your program design off then so like kind of the assessment and, and the program design yeah so if you were my athlete and you were coming in we want to do a full comprehensive assessment we would probably start by just sitting down and trying to get a feel for who you are as a person what kind of personality you have um have you ever read conscious coaching yeah yeah sure i'm very good friends with brett Right. So yeah, kind of doing some of those more human elements. A lot of things in that book weren't really about improving performance necessarily. They're just about managing people and personalities. So that's just a good starting point. We'd go through some form of movement assessment. We actually um, have like a whole course that we just launched recently based around that. Um, and I'm actually writing a book as like an adjunct to it currently. But what that might look like is 
some simple screens we might have you do controlled articulations for every functional joint that we could see so seeing if you're lacking any um, passive range of motion in those joints or active range in those joints then we might have you do some like compound movement screens and seeing how those issues manifest if you have any injury history we're going to start to look at that specific injury in that region of the body but also what compensation patterns you have that contribute to that so that could be um, something as simple as like, oh, you tore your labrum before, so let's look at the function of the shoulder and like your actual sporting mechanics. Or it could be something as complicated as, oh, your left ankle has been bothering you for six months. Well, let's look at what your left knee and your left hip are doing and then subsequently what your right shoulder is doing because if you look at fascial lines, the right shoulder and the left hip are connected to one another. So things along those lines. And then we could also start to do some physiological assessments. So the simplest version of that would just be using NEARS. Um, our application of that is just using the Moxie monitor. I find it's just one of the better devices on the market. So with that, we are going to do a series of physiological assessments. And we'll try to determine what your compensation patterns are with those originally and we got into that technology we thought the application was seeing what your physiological limiter is on a given test but what we've realized over time is that specific limiters also come with very specific compensation patterns so for example if you had a delivery limited athlete you'll see one of their compensation patterns is um and for people, a delivery-limited athlete is someone who um, utilizes oxygen at a much faster rate than they deliver it. Mm. Oftentimes, those athletes create a lot of occlusions and blockages in the muscle, and the heart's going to be driven to push through those blockages. The downstream effect of that on the brain and all the compensation patterns is that those athletes are going to ramp up their muscle tension, and a lot of times they'll lose rotational ability in the spine. So that athlete might present with like a lower back injury. If we were to just do a movement assessment, we'd be looking at their lower back, their quads, all these things, trying to figure out what it is. But in reality, their movement limitation is actually a bioenergetic limitation. So what we're trying to do with all these different assessments is create a holistic view of like the organism or the person. And then you can look at all of their issues in sport or all of their um, different compensation patterns or why they can't get better at training. And you could start to put the puzzle pieces together and figure out like why that actually is and what types of inter interventions we need to fix those things. Oftentimes the interventions are so simple that it's ridiculous or they're nothing like what you'd think they are if you were just looking at the issue in isolation. Yeah, it's super interesting. That's where I want to go kind of more with our energy systems talk. So um let's so let's let's tackle the periodization one though here first. So you spoke about sort of uh on the My Muscle Project, um the episode you did with Kyle with the two lads, because then you had your own episode where you spoke more about sort of outdated energy system models and it originally started off like talking about aerobic systems, but you kinda of got into the whole the whole lot. But uh, with periodization, Evan, uh, give us your thoughts on this. When you hear the word periodization, because you kind of touched on it a little bit there earlier, saying, you know, you kind of, you, you sort of more plan in kind of two-week cycles um, mm -hmm. and adjust as you go along. But give us your, kind of your whole thought process on periodization. Like when you hear that word, like what, what, what comes to mind? Yeah, so what 
originally comes to mind when I hear periodization. Um, I'm not going to say that I don't periodize training because simply put, I am periodizing training just in the process of progressing it. Yeah. But I don't necessarily do it in the way that people often think. So when you hear periodization, most people think of like Tudor Bompa's periodization book or like block training or all of these things. Um, I tend to be kind of opposed to a lot of those ideas or these like yearly training planning cycles. I go with a little bit more of an intuitive approach just to create some like structure nomenclature. The kind of approach that we use, we call it the limiter bridge performance model. And that's just like a name that we created for the sake of um, our education courses and trying to create some unified language. So one of the general ideas is that initially, and this is something I did in the past personally, so if this is a fault, it's because I've actually made this, is that when I look at a sporting event, I'd analyze the demands of the event and just reduce it to a series of time trials. And all of the training and periodization that I do would be based on like intervals targeting specific training zones and these like specific physiological adaptations. But that assumed that sporting events actually fit into those zones and classifications. And the reality is that sport doesn't fit into those boxes. So while a lot of those protocols do improve an athlete's potential and their physiological capacity, they really don't maximize performance and they often leave people underprepared for competition. On the flip side, if you look at like a classic CrossFit approach where you're just hammering Metcons and doing the sport all the time, I think that maximizes the athlete's current potential, but it really doesn't raise their performance ceiling and you end up with under-conditioned athletes. So the limiter bridge performance model is really just a system or set of tools that you could use to prevent both of these scenarios by touching on all of your training qualities throughout the year and just kind of micromanaging the degrees that you're doing that and emphasizing different pieces at any given point in time. So one of the like, or did you want to jump in there? I know I'm kind of... No, this is, this is really, really good. Uh, no, I'm also very happy because I, I finally didn't remember what I was going to say at that time, but uh, I'll get back in a second. But uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, something I want, because that's why I'm writing here. So I'm like, I'm not forgetting that thought again. Um, you, I actually meant to say this to you when you said about you train all qualities and you kind of just emphasize one particular quality or compatible qualities. That's not exactly what you said, but that's what goes in my mind. Because it's like vertical integration for Charlie Francis. Exactly how I program too. And ter- we, <laughs> we, all, we keep every, it's kind of, Alvar Meal has a saying, you keep a thread of everything in your program at all times. But uh, yes, it's, I'm similar model. So be Bonner Chuck would call it the complex model, and like other people mm. call it concurrent, and other people call it vertical integration from Charlie. So I'd be very similar too. But the reason I bring that up is, and we talked spoke about this offline. For like, I'm doing um like this fucking annual plan for my master's Excel, and I kind of want to see it like the classical bump and early type thing. We mm-hmm. do fucking hypertrophy phase, your max strength and your power. Or they call it conversion phase, <laughs> the conversion yeah. phase. <laughs> Uh, but uh, that model, even long like long I was a young coach, that model never made sense to me because I was like, right, I have a guy, let's say, and I do an assessment on him, and the information I get from that assessment says this guy does not need hypertrophy, this guy mm-hmm. does not need to do maximum strength work, this guy does not even need to do explosive work. What this guy is limited in is work aerobic development and elastic reactive capabilities, and I'm like, I've got eight weeks for him. Why the fuck am I going to cycle through? qualities that he's already good at like a hypertrophy and a strength block never made sense to me so i was always like right that's my thing there's my time we're going to focus on what he's weakest in it's kind of like you're bridging you know that mm-hmm. limited bridge you're talking about and that's how i would 
with program. So it's it's you know it's just kind of uh, it's resonating that that model. Like and the more people I talk to, and the more kind of smart people I talk to, like yourself, that seems to be the way they program because it just makes logical sense though too. Instead of like regurgitating and recycling through the same blocks, and you're yeah. not really you're not really like attacking anything that's going to promote their performance. So it just never made sense to me. But uh, yeah. I, it's uh, I like what you're I like what you're saying. So I'm gonna. Just... Yeah, and I mean that that mindset falls apart even more when you work with CrossFit athletes who need to improve on 50 fucking training qualities throughout yeah. the year. When you're doing it in that way, you really never have time to actually address their limitations. And um, if you actually look at, because you'd think like this block periodization, you're like, if everyone uses it and cites it and all these things, you're like, it has to come from some reputable source or reputable. I pronounced that really weird. I have no (laughs) idea why. Um, But you look into the history of where that came from and it doesn't even come from biological science. It basically comes from like social planning manifestos and some like bullshit, impossible to read book that like they just write like sweet little nothings for 8,000 pages and you read the book and you're like, I have no idea where this even comes from. So like, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, a lot of the science on block periodization was done post hoc to justify what they were doing. Yeah. They didn't come up with that protocol because the research showed that that worked. And but I, uh, I know from Kylie, like, you know, John Kylie speaks about like, like, you know, some FES model, you know, kind of coming from, it was based off like an economic plan, like the five year yep. plan, the five year plan yeah. that fucking starved Russia and was a disaster for China as well. But fucking, uh, like, uh, and the thing is too, is that like, did, there's so many different block models too in terms of like there's the Verkashansky one versus say the fucking uh, Ishrin one like um, but Ishrin Ishrin's model is is like it isn't a true block model because he actually has retention loads he, it is like mm-hmm. in certain ways it's a concurrent model too like he's retention loads like where he emphasizes like the one good thing I liked from Ishrin's book was that he spoke about compatible versus non-compatible qualities but the <laughs> other thing that I do and don't like about it was the training residuals because some people took them to be gospel and I was just like he was just making like good guesstimates there yeah you know what I mean so but uh, yeah go ahead you were, you were still talking there Oh, yeah, I was going to say, like, Isra and I do like, though, a little bit more. But, yeah, a lot of those models, like, even that whole, like, classic supercompensation idea that they use for these block periodization models, the science that they use to justify that has completely fallen apart in the past 20 years. So it's like, even that, you're like, "Eh, maybe it's true to an extent, but not really. Um, And that goes into, like, a whole weird field, but... Back to uh, t- touch no touching that more because uh, like so how, how is super con- now I'm not I'm not questioning but I'm just I'm saying how has super because con- the people out there explain it more how has that fall flat in the face like, yeah, what, so what is flawed with that yeah so it's super compensation and I know they use like the said principle the specific adaptations to applied demands and the super compensation theory yes that is true to an extent but I think that whole idea is almost like trying to fool ourselves into thinking we understand the adaptive process. Like you apply this stress and you adapt in this direction and there's super compensation. A, that doesn't actually take into account like the whole biopsychosocial model. So how like biological factors, social factors and psychological factors interplay to create our adaptive process. Like training doesn't occur in a vacuum. It occurs on like chessboard of like biophysics and biochemistry and the environment that that is determines what the outcome of training is going to be so if a training textbook says oh you're going to do this aerobic endurance training adaptation 
um, 48 hours later, you're going to super compensate and you're going to get this result. The reality is that that's probably not going to occur. And if you look at the more contemporary literature on how adaptation actually occurs, which comes from um, fields like complex systems theory, dynamic systems theory, what it actually shows is adaptation occurs through the process of random self-organization or like a dynamic system of self-organization. So when you apply a training stress, you're not driving an athlete linearly in that direction. What you're doing is making it less likely that other things will occur. So if you have, you could think of it as like a matrix, you have these degrees of freedom or the way that I like to explain it sometimes is in analogy is say you're standing in the middle of a giant circle and around you is a thousand different doors um and behind one of those doors is the training adaptation that you want when you apply the training stress you're not going and opening that door and then you get that stress what you're doing is say knocking out half of those doors and then you have the proper nutrition the recovery and through all these inputs you eliminate enough of those degrees of freedom that you just make it exponentially more likely that you'll get that training response. If you put in all this training and all this work and you end up with, say, two doors left, one of them allows you to improve your limit strength. The other one makes you better suitable to um, adapt in an environment with chronic stress. And you're always stressed all the time. Selecting that limit strength door adaptation is going to be maladaptive for your survival. Your brain doesn't give a shit about winning a medal or these training Mm -hmm. adaptations. It cares about your environment and making yourself efficient for that environment. So you're going to select the other door and you're not going to increase your strength. So that just ties into why training is such a small part of um, like the actual adaptive process. Like I've even heard some like older coaches in track and fields, like do workouts even matter or is it all these other things that we're doing? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think like the problem though, that, that in terms of communicating that message, you, you like, again, everything, this is what I love about Dan too. Like, cause like, again, this resonates with me cause I obviously am biased towards this cause I think the same way in this regard that everything like lives on a spectrum. Like, so some people hear, hear us talking here and they go, Oh, oh what? So like, there's no plan. And like, you just throw all like plan at the window. It's like, no, we're like, yeah. that's not what we're saying. You have a plan, but within that plan, you have to understand that you're dealing with a fluid dynamic organism that, that mm-hmm. changes on a moment to moment basis. So I think that the analogy was very, very good. That when you're left with two and one, like is like your chronic stressor and that, and then all, you know, this door leads to that, ability to adapt to that stress or this over here limit strength which is what you're training for and like you are fucking all stressed your body's going uh fuck that limit strength we need to survive so i'm going through this door so that makes good sense so uh there was um there was something else i was going to say about periodization there to you too but sorry the thought i had earlier on this is what i was going to say earlier on was that uh talking about we were talking about athletes you know being dopaminergic and like going to instant mm-hmm. gratification and i was talking about in Zapolsky's book he's like if you're someone whose brain is more wired towards the amygdala the amygdala you will go for more instant gratification whereas your prefrontal cortex helps you to delay helps you with delay gratification and i was saying that's why when you're doing like a project you're like you'd be like ah, i'm on facebook and on my phone but you said in the podcast too with the lads you were talking about there's times where you have to get an athlete and to get them better 
you'd have to make them worse or something. So like, so you were talking about somebody who's very strong, but they need to get like an aerobic indicator up. And like, you're like, uh, see your, like your strength that you kind of pride yourself on and you get instant gratification from it's like, mm. where we can have to strip that back. That like may drop by like maybe 20 pounds or more yeah. just so we can get your aerobic capacity up. And then we, then like, you know, we'll get that strength back up. Believe me, we will, but it's, uh, it's not all going to happen all in one. So like that mm. can be very hard psychologically, obviously then for the athletes who like love that instant gratification. That's what I was trying to say, which then like, leads you into this whole like you spoke earlier on there but sort of conscious coaching and kind of getting a feel for people's personality like it kind of in my mind it just brings it all the way around in terms of people who love instant gratification and dopaminergic effect and that like you know how how important it is like to kind of get an appreciation of like is this person like a little more wired towards the amygdala are they a little more anxious are they a little more like of of a fear competitor or like, are they, you know, are they more in the prefrontal cortex? Are they more intellectual? Like, like a Brent Fikowski to me is way more prefrontal cortex athlete. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he, he understands the, the he, he can like override like an anxiety process in the amygdala when I think of Brent Fikowski. Whereas, yeah. get, like a Sarah Simonsar to me is like amygdala. Like she has to have it now, now, more, 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 more. I was like, no, Sarah, Sarah, relax. I promise you'll, 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 you'll be fine if you just like relax. Uh, she just always seems like she just overtrains. That's just my. That's purely just like a pure perception from what I've seen of her. Like, but that, that's just kind of maybe two examples I'm using. But that's what I was trying to say to you is that, mm-hmm. like, and you said that on the podcast of the boys. So I knew something you said in that podcast, and that like it can be hard to get someone to understand that you're gonna to have to get worse in a particular quality, particularly if it's something they pride themselves on, like you know, strength, more strength oriented at least, because you need to get like the aerobic capacity up. Um. <laughs> so yeah, that was very very interesting. I thought as well. Uh, so that's great thoughts there on periodization. Um, so we were talking about periodization, you know, like, yeah, so you get those purists and they're just like, they'll hear that now and they're like, so you throw that and that's not what we're saying. All. You, ha- you have a plan, but you need to know that within that plan, there has to be a lot of, you know, flexibility again, because you're dealing with a dynamic organism that is, that is the human being. So I don't know if you have anything more to add for that before you hop into the energy systems. Yeah. So, um, I guess going back to the periodization piece a little bit more. So I think, I think we were actually about to talk about some of the other issues that I think I see in kind of the way that I might yeah, go ahead, yeah. address that. Yeah. So I think um, like one of the bigger flaws I think with periodization is trying to create like too much polarization between training phases. I'm not meaning this to say that like I hate polarized training because that's absolutely not the case. And I think there's a lot to be, said about that process and I use it myself but I think what the issue is when you polarize phases too much so for example if you were to look at like a traditional block periodization model um, an endurance athlete might start with that classic like accumulation phase where they do a huge base of aerobic training and I know a lot of people don't even do it that way anymore they might do like an ends to middle world where they'll do a huge base of aerobic training and pure speed work yeah. followed by like an intensification phase and then sport specific training and then special endurance work and then it will finish with the realization phase where they focus on that like integrative preparedness and event specific tactics i'm not saying that approach doesn't work because that's absolutely not true tons of things have worked in the past but i don't think that's the best way to do it like if you look at roger banister's training the dude ran like twice a week and he would go hiking the other one or two days he still ran a four minute mile, not the best way to do it. So I think I'm not denying that that approach can work, but I think um, a lot of those training structures that are concerned with building a specific training quality for a handful of weeks, then switching the focus to something else, 
like speed in hopes that the athlete ends up in a better position where they started, that just doesn't really pan out for most athletes long term. So that's where I think that limiter bridge performance um, piece comes in. That being said, I still split it into like conceptual phases, but um, I don't only prioritize one thing at any given point. So I kind of advocate that the limitation-based protocols are like prioritized at a certain point while the rest of the training is either spent as like bridge or performance protocols to drive adaptation. And then the same concept that holds true in like a bridge phase, I'm still doing limiter and performance training, but that's the focus. So what it ends up looking like is training blocks don't really look that different from one another. The whole focus of training, regardless of the phase, is to just do what matters for the athlete. So the way that I try and explain this to athletes sometimes, because they'll ask me like, where are we in the training cycle? Where are we in the phase in the year and all these things? I'm like, we're doing a two-week training phase, and then we're going to do another two-week training phase. And between those two, you're probably not going to know that we're in a different training phase because they're going to look kind of the same. It's like an iPhone. If you go iPhone 1 to iPhone 2, I bet you $100 you can't find a single difference between the devices. Or if you go iPhone 7 to iPhone 8, they're the exact same thing. But if you go iPhone 1 to iPhone 8, they're very different. But since the change occurred so gradually, you can't pinpoint at any specific time when you're like, oh, at this point, it completely changed. It's the same thing with training. Over a long period, you might end up with a completely different training split, but you won't be able to just look at any specific week or month of the year and be like, that's when the change occurred because everything occurred so gradually and at the rate that made sense for the athlete that that's kind of how I'm managing it. I don't have these like big grandiose training plans because in the past I used to sit down for hours and come up with these models and I would never stick to them. So at this point I'm like, why am I going to waste my time if A, I never stick to these plans and B, like I don't really think that they're needed. So just to give a little more context around your programming. So are you assessing an athlete and then basically from there saying like, that's their biggest limiting factor that's what we're going after right now. Um, and like, uh, like, do you look at their competition calendar and say, right, and like work backwards from that? And, you know, from that assessment, when you find out what their biggest limiter is, like, is it just working on those in these sort of two-week cycles, up until comp? Or like, yeah, I know you said you still have a, a, con, a conceptual framework. Do you still kind of mm-hmm. have like an accumulation intensification and then pre-comp? Uh, and then within that, obviously, you're training all qualities and then emphasizing the biggest limiters? Yeah, I mean, I determine the primary priority or limitation at any given point i obviously need to take into account what their training years even though i don't necessarily like plans the reality is that i need to stick to some kind of structure just because the athlete has to compete on a given date but yeah i kind of work backwards in my mind i'll have like a rough outline of like oh this is going to be roughly a time that we're going to work on limitation based protocols primarily And then once we get to a point where I'm like, right, I think we improved this energetic limitation that we wanted to, or we like got rid of this compensation pattern that we wanted to. Now let's start to bridge the gap a little bit. And then once we could kind of exhaust that, I'll either go back to limitation training or I'll go into performance training. I kind of make those calls on the fly just based on what I'm seeing. Um, I know that's like not the best answer because I'm not really giving anything concrete, but the reality is that Like right now, I actually just wrote a book on energy system training that's about 150 pages. And I wrote it with like a lot of guidelines and all these things. But in the book, I do acknowledge that I'm like, while I am writing this, 
and laying out very specific guidelines for the sake of opening up a dialogue and having education and principles that I could teach, the reality is that the longer you do it, the less you're going to actually stick to those rules and you yeah. start to develop a little bit more intuition with it. Yeah, I think, again, like it's good just to have initial frameworks, but then obviously uh, you, you're similar to myself. You know, the, the longer you're in this, this profession, it's probably the same with a lot of professions, like the more you realize like those frameworks, like they're just they mean very little like at first they, they give you some sort of frame of reference and you know give you some sort of as you kind of touched on too conceptual and contextual framework but as you get more mature like you kind of see like they're like they're very flawed like you know but without them you mightn't be able to have made sense of what you're current of the way you're currently thinking so like they do they do have their place all right and um, kind of knowing that like again they have their limitations is is something that kind of comes to more fruition the more you mature as a coach going into energy systems i'm very interested in this so like uh you know i told you beforehand i have a podcast with aaron davis it isn't currently out at the time of this recording probably will be out there before this podcast gets posted but uh yeah he blew my mind with with some of the concepts he've come with and you know you've spoken depthly about energy systems on the my muscle project with uh with two buys um so get into energy systems, like just go down a whole rabbit hole. When you hear energy systems, like, like where does your mind go to? Yeah. So I think, um, obviously you've talked to Aaron before, just looking at, um, different people's methods or kind of ideas in the market. I think he's probably one of the people that I hold the most similar views to, um, to be completely honest. So the way that I kind of just think about it now is, I used to think of it in like these concrete zones, like this zone will drive this adaptation or that. And the way that I really just look at it now is everything is just a spectrum of either oxygen delivery or utilization. So we're either delivering more oxygen than we're utilizing. We're at a balance where we're delivering and utilizing the same amount of O2 or we're utilizing more than we're delivering. So a workout could be one of those, two of those, a blend of all of them. And understanding that process really just gives us an idea of what adaptation we're going to get. So now when I look at training, I will give like discrete training categorizations, but most of what I do now is blended energy system training, where if you were to look at it from a zone based training model, we're almost touching on like 50 to 70% of those training zones in a given session. So, um, I don't know where you want to jump off with that. I realized that that was extremely vague and confusing. So if you want no, to kind of no, go, no, 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 you keep whatever. Like energy systems is is uh, is confused. You think you have it all figured out? You're like, okay, we have three energy systems. Well, technically, we have four energy systems because you know there's there's ATP, then there's the phosphate, then there's the lactic, and there's aerobic. It's like, oh, they have these beautiful charts, and it's all like, yeah, this is all. You know, you look at the textbook, this all makes sense, and then it's like, yes, now we've. Uh, a lot of context here uh, who's the person <laughs> like is it a is it like a kid versus like uh, an elite athlete is it like you yeah. know like their training status their training history their biological capabilities in terms of outputs their genetics their mindset in that current moment of time and then of course the modality uh, maybe though know, you kind of touch this around but maybe speak about like how you use the moxie i'm very very interested in that because obviously aaron spoke about this too but in kind of discovering someone's limitations in terms of, you know, uh, utilizing oxygen and getting nutrients into certain muscle groups. Like, so, like, maybe talk about, like, you know, mixed modal um, 
mixed modal training and like you know how like that is like so different to obviously just like you know using using just one piece of equipment to drive an energy system response yes i think the biggest difference between mixed modal and cyclical when i first started getting into coaching crossfit i already said i come from a track and field background so those training models that i use in that sport like that was my bread and butter and what i knew so my logical assumption was I'm just going to take these same training models, same interval structures and sets and reps and just use CrossFit movements in those interval structures. I actually think like, I think it was like 2011 or 12. I was like, I'm just going to rip the shit out of Jack Daniels templates and just plug in CrossFit movements into it. And lo and behold, it didn't really work. So as I started getting into the Moxie more and I think you really get the most out of that tool when you start to use some other equipment with it. So I think if you're using a Moxie, you should probably get like a picometer, get a pulse oximeter, maybe get something to measure blood pressure respiration rate, because that really gives you a better picture. What I started to find is um, when I was doing that training, I was like, or let me kind of take a step back. So why don't those traditional energy system training models work for the mixed sports? Like, why couldn't I just take Jack Daniels model and plug in CrossFit movements? Because that's what a lot of people in the market still do. I see that all the time. And there's a few specific reasons that I started to notice. So one is the alternation of involved versus non-involved muscle groups in CrossFit. Mm-hmm. If I'm running, I'm using the same muscles the entire time. So I'm going to see my legs vasodilating. I'm probably going to see some vasoconstriction in like my delts and my upper body. And that's going to um, shunt blood towards the muscles that are actually working. That's just an evolutionary adaptation for efficiency. But in CrossFit, that doesn't really fly. I could be doing a workout where I'm on a ski erg and I'm doing a 2K ski erg and I'm driving all this blood up into my upper body. And as a result, I'm going to start to vasoconstrict in my lower body, but then I need to go and do heavy squat cleans. So I'm going to need to drive the blood back into my lower body. Well, if I'm only using those cyclical training models, it's not going to prepare me for that. And in fact, one of the things that we saw are delivery limited athletes, one of their biggest issues is diverting blood from involved to non-involved muscle groups. So if they're only using their upper body, they're going to have a lot of trouble getting blood back into their lower body. And as a result, a lot of those athletes, they would report cramping when they would do those types of workouts. So if they were to do a ton of chest bars and then go into high volume squatting, their quads would cramp. Or if they were doing high volume squat and then going to rope climbs, their biceps would cramp. We had looked at that for so long and we'd try all these different cramping protocols. Let's try and do like those hot shots with like the cayenne pepper to solve the cramping. That didn't work. Let's look at their movement. Maybe it's their weak in their end range and it's like neurological issues that didn't work but we ultimately found out it's like oh they actually just can't stop the vasoconstriction so that's one of the reasons why you can't just um do that another one is the impact of bracing and intra-abdominal pressures impact on blood pressure so mm-hmm. If I'm doing a track and field event, maybe with the exception of steeplechase where you might need to really like brace and jump over like that three foot thing or like over that giant water pit, you have pretty consistent intra-abdominal pressure levels and you're not really creating any hard bracing patterns. So blood pressure isn't really going to have many significant spikes. But what happens when you're doing CrossFit and you're putting heavy lifts or things that you need to brace or breathe differently in the midst of aerobic training, 
well, that bracing and intra-abdominal pressure is going to cut off blood in different regions of the body and spike blood pressure. So if you're only using those aerobic training models or those traditional endurance training models, they're not going to prepare athletes for the demands when they need to be able to create hard bracing patterns, which, mind you, um, the diaphragm is also a major spinal stabilizer. So if they're not accompanied to bracing under very high respiration rates when the diaphragm is fatigued, they... I mean, that's going to fuck them energetically, but also they might injure their back. Yeah. Um, they might not be able to push through when blood pressure increase, increases that much. They're either going to create venous or arterial occlusions. Anytime that happens, the heart's going to be driven to push through and break those blockages. They also won't be prepared for that. And then one of the last reasons why those training models don't transfer is the uncoupling of phosphocreatine and oxygen depletion rates due to the blend of max strength and aerobic demands. I know if you look at one of those classical um, energy system training models where it's like, oh, you're using this system for 10 to 20 seconds, this one from 20 to 40, this one, and so forth. With some of the um, newer energy system and bioenergetic, like the contemporary models, we've gone from that classic view to things like the glycogen shunt model or some of George Brooks' works, where we see all of those are working simultaneously um, and at different rates, but it's not in that like seconds to minutes range. It's actually occurring in hundredths to thousandths of a millisecond. So everything really is occurring simultaneously like all training is aerobic because oxygen is always present like yeah. all training is lactic because lactate is always present um in the oxygen and pcr systems are completely entangled with one another because of that but the issue becomes when you're doing sports like crossfit where you're pairing max strength you might have to hit a one rep max in the middle of like really high respiration rate work you're going to uncouple the O2 and PCR depletion rates. And if you're only training with those traditional aerobic training models, it's not going to prepare you for what happens because that's also going to create fatigue signatures your brain's not familiar with. Mm. Um, like fatigue is so much more complex than we used to think. And I'm not going to bullshit and say that I know all this stuff about fatigue because all I really know about that is that I have no fucking idea how fatigue works. But what I do know is it's not as simple as central and peripheral fatigue. There's like speed of contraction-based fatigue models, all these different things. And if you are not exposed to those in training, you're not going to be prepared for them in competition. So I think that's just like the nail in the coffin of why those traditional bioenergetic training models just don't really work for a sport like CrossFit. Nice. And why, Go yeah, ahead, I, was, I was just going to say why we see these like experts from the endurance market try and come into crossfit and they get these big followings and then you'll realize they don't really make anyone better and the things that they come up with don't really work for athletes in the sport except for the people at the highest level where in reality those people are probably going to get better no matter what they do yeah. like if you make them better as a coach it doesn't really mean anything because they could do randomized training and probably make as much progress it's super interesting uh, and like it, it makes complete sense because i mean it all goes back to the environment if if you're not preparing the organism for the environment that it, that it needs to be prepared for well then you're not going to have those adaptations in place going back to like you know you're kind of saying that you're kind of saying the brain signature like if, if the brain hasn't experienced 
those or sorry sorry you said fatigue signatures if the brain hasn't experienced those particular fatigue signatures in training then in competition you're fucked like because you'd be as you said you're trying to use these traditional you know energy system models from let's say a track and field world where again they were designed for more like you know cyclical activities and then you're trying to put that into a mixed modal uh, setup it's just like that's not going to work because it's not the environment that that the muscle or that the brain has to operate in. So just with the energy systems, um, just maybe for the listeners, I know Aaron went through this as well, but it's good refresher and it's just really selfish for me. Just discuss a little more about like Moxie. What is Moxie? Like what exactly are you doing as well to assess an athlete's energy systems in terms of their limiting factors? Um, and then do you have, and I know like again, there's like there's a lot of guidelines and and it depends on gray areas but do you have certain like categories that you'd put at least in there like you know like so i suppose like the typical generalization of people make is strong explosive not great aerobically then you can have someone who's aerobic not great not neurologically wired well if you know what i mean but so mm-hmm. my question there for you is how how are you going about assessing like kind of someone's energy system limitators and also maybe describe the equipment to use like like things like the moxie Yes. Yeah, so what the Moxie actually is, is it's called like a NEARS technology. NEARS just stands for near infrared spectroscopy. So basically the way that it works is it shines an infrared laser into the muscle. And um, when hemoglobin is bound to oxygen, it refla- refracts a specific wavelength of light. When it's mm-hmm. not bound to oxygen, it refracts a different wavelength. That laser is going to get bounced back into the device and it's going to send an algorithm to the computer. And it's really all that it's telling you is at any given point, it's telling you how much hemoglobin there is in the muscle. And it's telling you what percentage of that is bound to oxygen. So the percent SMO2 or muscle oxygen saturation. In addition to that, we're going to use a picometer and we're going to use that to measure forced vital capacity or FVC6. Um, so, Evan, just before you go on there, just with Moxie and, and the picometer. So, with the Moxie, am I wear, am I wearing that as I as I do something? Yeah. So, we're gonna um, affix that to a muscle. You could either you usually want to use it on a large muscle group. I know I've had people ask, like, well, if it's only on this one muscle, then what's happening somewhere else in the body? You could actually um, just put one on like the delt and on the quad. And that's going to give you a pretty good picture. I know a scientist from Nike who built a suit with like 30 Moxie sensors on it, was measuring saturation in like every region of the body. And what they found using that suit is that you would get the exact same data wearing one sensor on your delta and on your quad. Yeah, because Aaron told me about that. Aaron, he wrote about it in an article for Simply Fast where he says they'll put the Moxie on a non-involved muscle and you can get the information that you need from that. Like, So I think he was saying that you know, if you were doing something with the lower body and he'd put the uh, moxie up on the deltoid to, and then if he was seeing that blood was getting drawn away from the deltoid that was showing that you're, you weren't efficient delivering the oxygen then down to mm-hmm. the lower body, like in, in terms of the information he could get. Like, so I thought that was very, very interesting. Yeah. So, um, is there anything else about the moxie in particular that you want so, to yeah, hear? Is it, is it, is it, so like, what is it? Like what, what exactly, like what's on me when it went, so let's say you're assessing me now with that. What, am I wearing Like, is it, a, is it just yeah. like, a, so it's a little, it's literally like an inch by an inch, like a little box. Um, and you, and put, it on, and you put it on my skin there. Or, or yeah. Like we're going to stick it to the muscle. So we're going to put like an adhesive film on the bottom of it okay, and okay. we're going to stick it to the muscle. And then we might just put like a little bandage around the muscle just so it doesn't get ripped off. 
Cool. And you're going to wear that the entire time. You could set it to um, different settings. I have it shoot the laser every second. So we're getting a reading on the second and getting like a constant uh, data stream. And that's kind of just like you said and forget it. While you're doing the workout on my laptop screen in live time, I'll see the amount of blood and oxygen in the muscle. And I'm going to record the trends for that. So if I see you're starting to desaturate oxygen. Um, and, what, and what would you have me do there now? Like what, is it, do you like have a standard sort of activity that, that, that people do? or So it really depends on a lot of times I'll have some context for who the athlete is before mm-hmm. they come into testing. So that will kind of um, give me like a lens to look at or if I know their sport. But if you just came in off the street, I have no idea who you are, I would give you two assessments. One of them would be a progressive step test, four minutes on, one minute off, yeah. where every other block increases in wattage. So we might go like 225, 225, 250, 250. Um, and then if then we would do a higher intensity assessment, I might take like 75% of your max wattage and have you hold that wattage until you completely desaturate oxygen in the muscle or you plateau and you can't desaturate, I would let you rest until um, blood pressure and oxygen in the muscle stabilize and have you repeat that process until you get some form of physiological compensation. Those might be like two of the assessments I would give everyone or I might give you instead of that second one like a repeated sprint where you do 75% of your max wattage for 10 seconds, rest Mm. a minute, and do that until I see some kind of compensation. Those aren't the best tests, but they could give me a pretty good picture. And like, there, like I'm, like there is no norms. Now, are you just are you just doing a like getting a baseline, getting me to recover, and then and then see what my repeatability is of that? Then to get it kind of feel. Yeah. So since there is, there are some norms, but and there are some very specific things I'm looking for, but I kind of have to auto-regulate and conduct the test. Yeah. So oftentimes some of the tests become tricky because I'll tell an athlete, like when I say stop, you stop. And then when I say go, go again, but I'll try and um, like estimate it. Like if I see they're desaturating and it's going to start to plateau, I'll try and game and be like in five, four, three, two, one, stop the interval. And then if I see blood pressure and oxygen recovering to a baseline, I'll try and estimate and be like in 10 seconds, we're going to start again, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, super, super interesting. Okay, and then the picometer, what the fuck is that? So picometer is going to measure force vital capacity or FBC6. That's the maximal amount of air you can move in six seconds. And that's going to give me some measure of like your functional lung volume. Mm. Um, you could also take FVC6 to FEV1% ratio, which is the percentage of that air you could expire in the first second of the six seconds. Yeah. That's used to diagnose respiratory blockages. That's actually, um, if someone had COPD, that is one of the ways that they would diagnose pulmonary disease. Um, we could also use something like a bioharness to measure respiratory frequency, the total breaths per minute that someone's taking. And again, are you, am I like, so, and again, what are these pieces of equipment? Like, what do they look like? Am I wearing so, something? And am I doing, am I, do I have that shit on me? Like at the same time I'm doing your stuff with the Moxie? So the picometer, we're going to take all those measurements before you put the Moxie on. That's just going to be taken at a baseline. It's a little device, it's like three inches tall and just you're blow just going to blow into it. The Moxie you're going to wear the whole time. Hmm. Um, if you were to wear a bio harness, you would wear that the entire test would be like strapped to you, or you could do that with 
A lot of people, the polygraph, you think of as a lie detector. It's actually <laughs> a really good athlete testing device. Where were you Thursday night, your bollocks? Yeah, so you could literally use a Bluetooth polygraph, and it will measure your blood pressure and your respiration wow. rate while you're doing a test. So that's another option. And then we'll use a pulse oximeter during the rest periods of that test. So I could get peripheral oxygen saturation. Man, that's so cool. So there are your assessments. There's some of the equipment to use. What are what, like what are the the kind of common if there is if there is and again I'm all everyone who's listening to my podcast and you like this is the first time I ever spoke but you already you already know this everything's about context but is there is again is there common sort of categories you see of certain athletes coming in like I suppose like uh, you know a popular one is that really strength power based person and they just have fucking terrible um, work capacity if you want to want to use a, a that sort of term for. You know, the, their repeatability is poor. Like, so, like, they, they put out one big effort and then, like, just the drop-off is fucking brutal. So they need more yeah. like, capability to, to recover and replenish in between bouts of high-intensity activities. So is there, like, what are sort of common trends you see with some of the top CrossFitters or, or like, topper CrossFitters? Yeah, so I, I definitely do think we could do some actionables with that. I could explain that, and then if you want, I could explain what I'm actually measuring to determine that. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah, great. Between elite CrossFit athletes, I really think we kind of have two different groups. Each of these groups has tons of subcategories and all these things, but that goes into that kind of bullshit, it depends answer, and I'd rather give some kind of real information. <laughs> so we could kind of, uh, I actually have these two specific athletes in my head when I'm saying this, and it's kind of funny because at the games, you often see those dudes that look kind of like a Fakowski or like a Travis Mayer, and they're like those lean, pretty thin dudes. Then you see like a Jason Kuipa who looks like a bodybuilder. That's actually like a pretty good prototypical um, categorization. Those thinner guys are usually the respiratory limited athletes, and those super thick, like yoked games competitors are usually the delivery limited athletes. So if you kind of keep those two pictures in your head while I'm going through this, mm. it's like a pretty good stereotype. So those respiratory limited guys, like a Fakowski or I could say Travis Mayer fits into that because I've actually done his physiological testing and I know he's respiratory limited. Um, they usually have great cardiac output in really fantastic mitochondria and capillary density. But relative to that, they have a weaker respiratory system. So what this ends up looking like is during a test, they're going to have a decrease in muscle oxygen saturation and they're not going to be able to reload that oxygen saturation during rest periods. But what you're also going to see is really high um, blood volume due to vasodilation. So these athletes, they're breathing hard, but their diaphragm's fatiguing and they can't breathe off the excess CO2 buildup. Um, but CO2 is a vasodilator, so that's going to cause all this blood to influx in, but that blood's not going to be saturated with O2. So some of the compensation patterns that you see in this athlete is you see a drop in SpO2 or peripheral oxygen saturation. That's going to cause like a hypoxemia. Sometimes with these athletes, when they get to the point of failure, they'll start to get like tingling hands and uh, feet. They might get like numb lips or they might see like visual spottiness and tunneling out. A perfect example would be if you've ever watched high level cross country and you see athletes blacking out in front of the finish line that is a really good indication that that athlete's respiratory limited and they've pushed to their breaking point. Another uh, thing that we'll see is a low lean body mass to FVC6 ratio. So what this often means is this athlete 
has too much lean tissue relative to what they could ventilate. So um, if an athlete weighs 180 pounds and they could only ventilate 120 liters of oxygen per minute, you're fucked. If they weigh 180 pounds and they could ventilate 200, that athlete's always going to win compared to the first one. So oftentimes these athletes, they're not ventilating enough liters of oxygen per minute relative to their body size. This could be because their functional lung capacity isn't large enough, which is oftentimes neurological, and they simply don't know how to use their lung capacity. It could be because their diaphragm is not fatigue-resistant enough to actually breathe with the breaths per minute and the death to get them that O2, and that would be something we'd use like a spirotiger to train that. Um, these athletes often have trouble gaining a lot of muscle mass, and that's because they over-deliver oxygen to the muscle during strength work. So they quite literally can't create the right environment in the muscle to get like the right metabolic stress and deoxygenation to hypertrophy. Mm. That's why using like 20 rep protocols or things like that often work well for these athletes or extended sets, drop sets, strip sets. Um, these athletes usually have lower neural drives. So that's where you get that like more enduring than powerful kind of thing, though that's not always the case. Usually they have really good tissue quality. So even if these athletes look pretty jacked or like a lean athlete, if you press into the muscle, it's usually pretty soft and has a lot of give. They don't carry a lot of neurological tension in the muscle. And then last, these athletes usually adapt really well to both oxygenating and deoxygenating training. So they'd adapt to energy system training like you'd expect a middle distance athlete to do. You don't really have to worry about like subpar adaptation with these kinds of people. Super interesting. So, again, with those guys, you're saying that the Spire Tiger, you use that to train the respiratory system? Yeah, that's one of the better tools to use because oftentimes if an athlete needs to train at that high level of respiration to create that diaphragm fatigue, well, you could do that in a workout, but chances are your arms and legs are going to fatigue so badly that you can't sustain that hyperventilation because yeah. when you go to that point, you get what's called the respiratory metaboreflex. What that is, is your brain basically cuts off blood to your extremity limbs to stop you from moving so you could shunt all the blood and O2 to your diaphragm. But when you're using the Spirotiger, you're taking the extremity muscles out of the equation so you could keep pushing when your brain cuts off blood flow to your arms and legs because you have the device and you're just sitting there breathing into it. So you could literally hyperventilate into the Spirotiger for an hour straight and that would feel very similar to you running all out for an hour. And then so going into the second category about like the Jason Kalipas, what, what, what would yep. the training look like for them boys? And it just with the Kalipas then, you were kind of saying, so these guys, uh, these guys, um, actually, no, I was going to say something, but actually, you know, you, you go ahead with that actually. So, yeah, yes, so these guys. one thing you'll notice, if you look at the games this past year, last year, the past three years even, you see way less like huge, thick games athletes than you did a few years back. Yeah. And I think that's for a reason. A lot of times those athletes, tons of them get to regionals because it makes you a decent open athlete and a pretty good regional athlete. But the games almost selects against that. So those delivery limited athletes, they have really good mitochondrial and capillary density. So oftentimes they have phenomenal muscular endurance, but they have weak cardiac output. So what – basically happened so this is what i was going to say and i didn't want to say because i I thought it might have been wrong because i was thinking 
because the other guys have respiratory issues. So I, I will ask them a question. But so these guys have good c- c- computerization on their tick and, and all that. And it, it is it is kind of is this basically what kind of James Gerald when he talks about like you know these guys have like these bodybuilding backgrounds like they've done they've years of bodybuilding so that's why they they've actually they're good from that uh, from a peripheral standpoint they're quite good to use oxygen but as you're saying that their limiting factor is more central to heart but these guys yes. peripherally yeah. are fine but then sorry going back to the Vakowski and let's say Travis Mayer their limiting factor then are they good peripherally too but their limiting factor is like just respiratory lungs yeah it's well. Yeah, it's primarily getting the oxygen into the body is the issue. And mind you, like with a games athlete at that level, um, because of the way that they train, they're never going to be purely respiratory or purely oh, delivery. I know, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, there are always some blend. But yeah, generally, if in these limitations don't even always manifest in the sport for them. In a CrossFit workout, yeah. they might not even come to a respiratory failure point. I understand that. why it's important to train sport specific. But yeah, their issue is getting the O2 in. So just just give it a little more, like just to clear it even in my mind. So, and we'll just we'll just say Vikowski versus Kaliber. So with yep. the Vikowski type athlete, they their heart's good, their periphery's good, but it's more kind of lung respiratory. Mm-hmm. And then yep. with a, with a Kaliba is periphery's good. And the re, uh, the, what I was going to say, and then I just wanted I didn't say because I still want to clear what I just cleared up there now. Uh, with the Kaliba type, they, periphery they're good too because, like in my mind. This just come from James. He's like, you get those guys who have extensive backgrounds in bodybuilding before they went into the crossfit. He's like, they have like that basically peripheral aerobic development already there, like ready to go. But with this Kaliba type person, so they have the peripheral development, the computerization, but it's their heart like, so they don't have the cardiac output, the morphology of the heart. Is it? Yeah, you could even say it even more simply. They're great at utilizing oxygen and they're just terrible at delivering it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. what ends up happening is just blood pressure limits their blood flow, which creates a low oxygen environment and ultimately just failure when their heart can't break through that blood pressure blockage. They contract too hard, basically. Yeah, it's almost they're too strong. Like their muscles are too strong relative to what their heart can pump against. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron was saying So it's kind of like Goldilocks. You, like, because obviously you want some amount of muscle contraction for venous return, like, um, but you don't want it so hard that it's that's occluding arterial flow. Yep. So it needs to be just like just right, basically. You don't want to contract yeah. too hard. Yeah. And so what what would you do for them, boys? So obviously for the rest for the for the. For the for the first type there, you're saying you do like Spire Tiger and train the lungs and, and, and doing kind of more lung-based protocols there. What would you do for these types of guys? Would it just be your classic cardiac output work while they're doing sort of mixed modal or what would it so look like? So the issue with these guys is because they run into that occlusion issue is they get subpar adaptation to aerobic training work. So I know in the past I've heard CrossFit coaches brag that like I have my person only doing like zone one or zone two or zone three and they keep getting stronger and like i'm not even doing strength work in reality the reason for that is because they're actually getting a subpar adaptation and their brain is not interpreting that easy aerobic work is easy aerobic work they're getting an anaerobic adaptation from that and that is because when the heart is driven to push through a blockage and it cannot push through it the way that the brain interprets that, like if you looked at an omega wave and they're only doing easy aerobic work and you just see the anaerobic scores going up and you're like, oh, they're actually adapting in a completely different way to this type of work. So for these types of athletes, it's a mixture of what you are doing, but also what you're not doing with them. Because these are the guys that 
they get good at the sport really quickly, but they hit a wall. So oftentimes you need to make them worse for a period so you could get them better again. And so, is is that is that exactly where like, we were talking about earlier on? But like a guy who's super strong with a squat, and you're like, uh, we need to like put more time into this aerobic piece so your strength work might uh, de- de- decrease a little bit for a while. Yeah, and yeah. like it, it's a hard sell for people because a lot of times if you pride yourself on being like a five hundred something pound back squatter, you need that dopamine. You need that dopamine. Yeah, it's like they're so addicted. I'm like, you know what? Like, you need to squat four twenty five for the next twelve months and. <laughs> Like in reality, like for the sport, they're probably going to be a better athlete squatting 425 because really how many top games athletes could squat over 500 pounds? Mm. One of them, two of them, like the guys that won the strength events at the games, very much not the best games athletes. Yeah, yeah, big time. So for these guys, uh, what energy system training really looks like is creating optimal supply and demand scenarios in the muscle. So one way that you could do this, like probably the simplest example is say I were to give you a 500 meter row at your 2k pace and rest two minutes and you do 10 sets of that. What's going to happen for this delivery limited athlete is as soon as they start that interval, they're going to pull all the oxygen out of the muscle and they're going to be playing catch up the rest of that interval. And they're just going to be training compensation patterns and not addressing the limiter. Now, instead, let's take a 500 meter row in every 100 meters, we're going to increase your pace. So we're going to start at your 30 minute time trial pace in every hundred meters. We're going to speed the pace up by five seconds um, on the 500 meter split. The yeah. average pace for that actually ends up being about the 2k pace. So it's the same as if you were to do the whole row at that pace, yeah. but you get a completely different adaptation because you're overcoming cardiac lag and you're pulling the oxygen out of the muscle at the same rate that the heart could deliver O2. So you're actually training the heart to be able to um, in, like, put out an ever-increasing amount of blood in O2. So again, and in that situation, the brain isn't like, oh, this is anaerobic because it's not forcing its way into like a, a contracted muscle. Like, exactly. Down, down on top of a arterial flow. Like, yeah, yeah, I get that. Again, it again, comes back to environment in the brain, doesn't it? Just like yeah. the brain's perception environment is key. There, uh, there was a question uh, when you were talking about periodization earlier on, and yeah, you, you, you mentioned the the word, and it it, it fucking re um, reignited the thought I had. My fucking brain's been terrible today. I'm brutally dehydrated because before we hopped online, I was like sitting with my laptop for two hours, and like whenever I have the laptop in front of my face, I always am just brain dead after, and it, it purely just comes down. I think my brain's just like so dehydrated. Because there's some days, like, there's some days, you know, like, your brain's just, like, it's so, like, wired and, like, thoughts are flowing everything's going. Then there's other days where you just, like, you stop halfway through a sentence you're like, the f-? and that, that drives me nuts, actually, when I forget to talk. Because it makes me feel like I'm getting old. It makes me feel like I've yeah. early fucking Alzheimer's. And I'm like, oh, bollocks. Then I always think, like, I need to go get my brain scanned. Um, I just need more fat in my diet, really, to be honest. And I just need more water. I know I'm dehydrated. But... Auto regulation. Let me just talk about. So we'll just talk about auto regulation, and then we'll wrap up then with just some like quick fire things, like your lessons and top books and resources. Yep. If you need to get up and take a piss or go answer a door, you, I can stop this or like you know what I mean. So well, actually, I won't, I won't. I won't. Like I'm lazy when it comes to editing for my own podcast. But uh, auto regulation. One thing I, I did find really interesting, and I was nodding my head at when you were sp- speaking to Rafa Lachlan. Rafa Lachlan on the My Muscle Project, the one, the the one your solo episode. Was, or was it your solo episode? It could have been actually the one with Kyle. It was one of them anyway. But you were speaking about... Uh, actually, it was one with Kyle. You were, yeah, it was one with Kyle. Um, 
you know, you read like classical books like Super Train or just like your classical strength books and they always have like those tables mapped out where, you know, if you do this amount of sets with this amount of reps at this percentage, you're going to get this adaptation. And like, because you were talking about auto-regulation, you're like, well, like, if you if you said to someone you're going to do, I think you said something like 15 sets of five, like, like 90%, yeah. something ridiculous. Most people are like, that coach doesn't clue what he's talking about. And he's like, yeah, but you don't have any context to the individual who's getting that. And that person for that day might need that prescription to actually drive the, the to actually drive the adaptation that they need. Yeah. Like they, they need that to get the adequate dose response for that particular day. So like I was kind of nodding my head going, yeah, again, I agree with this. Because again, it kind of, it's kind of similar to our energy system discussion where like people are like, oh, this is a lactic power and capacity. This is a, a lactic power capacity. That's a aerobic power capacity. And it's like, uh yeah only if like the person can actually output those efforts in those time frames and then we also have to consider the modality and the whole thing like the whole thing that's going on the person their training age their biology genetics and then the same to them with these strength training prescriptions so maybe just get into like auto regulation and like some of these flawed concepts of like you know again open up a textbook and it's just like all these like guidelines with no context yeah yes i mean the thing that i like about auto regulation is I think the first time that I kind of started to think that might have something to it is, um, I think I was reading super training at the time. And you know that like Priplin's table, like if you're doing 90%, yeah, Priplin, doing five yeah, reps, yeah. Yeah. I remember it said like, if you're, I'm just making up these numbers, I can't actually remember, but it said for like over 90% effort work, you should do like six reps in a session yeah, I, I actually I know it off well I I know most of it off heart. So at ninety percent, it's one to ten repetitions, with seven being the optimal. Okay, so, so it, gives you, it gives you a range. It says seven is the optimal, and then with eighty to ninety, it's two to four sets with ten to twenty reps. So fifteen being optimal, and then it, it goes it peels back two more layers, and that it goes set it goes ninety to one hundred, eighty to ninety, seventy to eighty. I think seventy eighty was three to six repetitions, and eighty to thirty, and then it was uh, I could be wrong on that one. Well, I'll. Anyway, and then before that was like 55, 60% with three to six repetitions again. I think that one's 18 to 30 with the optimal then being 18, so it's in between. And then below that, yeah, anyway, I'll fucking put Prilipin's chart. But the yeah. overnight, the overnight 90% is one to 10 reps with seven being the optimal. Yeah, so I remember reading that and I was like, oh, that makes sense because all the justifications for Prilipin's table. But then <laughs> yeah. I was looking at my own training and I'm like, why haven't I gotten stronger in six months? oh, I could hit over 10 reps in one set at 90% of my one rep max. So why would doing seven reps in a session do anything whatsoever for me? It's not going to because it's not going to create enough stress. So I think moving away from those strict textbook concepts of this is how many reps and how many sets, it's like, no, there's no such thing as a perfect range and there's no such thing as high or low volume. It's just the correct amount of volume for someone. So I think when I'd started to... um like stop looking for those perfect protocols. Like I'd have athletes myself where we would try like this type of strength training protocol. We would try triphasic and we would try all these different things and they weren't getting stronger. And I'm like, either these protocols just don't work for them or maybe we're not doing enough volumes. Then we started using auto-regulated strength protocols. And I'd see my athletes that were great adapters at strength work already, they would end up doing like two or three sets of the work and great, they would keep getting better. My yeah. athletes that were the like quote unquote hard gainers, sometimes they would be doing 10 to 15 sets of an exercise 
And guess what? They started progressing month after month and keeping the progressions going for up to like an entire year. And it's like, they, well, maybe they, they don't, they, they don't have the same neurological efficiency as, as like those, you know, those strength wire people, if you like. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they can handle way more volume at those higher intensities. Like that, again, if, and if you look at Prolific's chart, or who did that come from? It came from fucking elite level Olympic weightlifters who like classically, if you're looking at them body type wise, they're going to be your strength explosive guys. You know, that, like that cause a lot of homeostatic disruption every time mm-hmm. they lift because they can put out so much biological output. Just yep. for you go on there, uh, I got the fucking table up here actually because that again I'm a fucking that would drive me nuts. So it has four categories: fifty-five to sixty-five percent, three to six reps per set. Uh, total range is eighteen to thirty, often being twenty-four. Then it goes from it goes from there up to seventy to eighty percent, three to six reps per set. 12 to twenty-four total range with eighteen being optimal. Then eighty to ninety, two to four reps per set. 10 to 20 is your range, 15 being optimal. And then it has 90% plus 10 reps, uh, one to two reps. Uh, sorry, and, and it's four reps being optimal. I think there's another, there's another uh, chart that Louis, that Louis, um, that Louis kind of slightly uh, changed and he had seven reps. And well, now actually in saying that, there's another prolific chart here and it says seven is the optimal rest for over 90%. So there's different ones. There's actually a really nice one from Joe Ken and from Rob Wolf where like they break it down even more into like, this is like high volume for over 90, medium volume, and then uh, low volume. So or it's actually low volume, medium volume, high volume for over 90, and then low volume, medium volume, high volume for 80 to 90, and the same then for 70, 80, and 55, 65. But anyway, sorry. To cut across you there, but yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying here. So continue, please. You're saying like yes, the, the, the nice. lower, the lower, the lower level kind of people were, and the people who put out less force were taking way more volume, higher well, percentages. One of the things that really fucked my head up about a year ago is I found one of my athletes. I was giving him this auto-regulated strength work, and he was doing like 10, 11, 12 sets every week. And usually that's something I see like a weaker athlete or, um, but this dude's an over 500 pound squatter. Oh. So I was like what the fuck is going on because he's like a bubble level regional athlete squats 500 pounds he would be doing like 10 sets of five on deadlifts at 425 and i'm like what the fuck is going on right now like why isn't this guy just like imploding on himself because all of my other i do have other athletes that are that strong but they would do like two or three sets so I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. And this is when I actually, I started to challenge that like neuromuscular efficiency concept mm. a little bit. So what I started doing, and I think I actually got the idea from this test from Aaron Davis, going back to him again, um, is looking at what percentage of athletes one rep maxes that they cut off blood to the artery at. What I found is that neuromuscular efficiency test where you do max reps at 85% and you're like, oh, this person that does 20 reps has low enemy and this person that does two reps is high enemy. What it actually turned out being is no, the person who does two reps just cuts off blood to their artery after two reps. And the person Very that does good. 20 is getting blood and O2 into the muscle. So it has nothing to do with their neuromuscular efficiency. It's the fact that their heart is strong enough to keep pushing blood and oxygen into the muscle. So what we started seeing is my athlete that could squat that heavy and still do those high um, sets he's able to go up to like 80% of his one rep max while still um, getting blood into the muscle where an athlete that might fail an NME test at three reps, they might get arterial occlusion at 40% of their one rep max. And when I did that test, I get arterial occlusion at 90% of my one rep max. So it kind of sheds light on why some athletes need so many sets because I've done auto-regulated strength work using the MOXIE 
And what I found is if I get capped at 10 or 11 sets, that's when I start occluding my artery. It's not because like, I mean, obviously the neurological factor comes in, the mechanical stress comes in, but it was really, a lot of it came down to the bioenergetics of it. Man, that is fucking super interesting. The fucking knowledge. I'm going to have to listen back to this a few times. Great, great. So we've touched on periodization. Well, we've touched on a few things. You know, we started off with your background, got into some influences. Well, actually, we went background. Then we spoke about uh, dopaminergic, dopaminergic uh, need of crossword athletes, instant delay gratification. Uh, then got your influences, spoke with the good, not so good, got into periodization, got into energy systems, and then spoke there about autoregulation. So it's phenomenal, man. It, Definitely, we're going to get you back on and speak about more, a lot more. Even just to, like even even if it was just maybe just to talk with this stuff again, even just to hear it again and again, it was very very good, man. That is like that is just savage stuff. That is even just there now, but the neuromuscular efficiency and saying, oh, that's actually a heart issue again with blood delivery. That is super interesting, and then just like the assessment of the energy systems that you guys are getting at. It's just fucking savage. Um, just with regards to your book, where is it out? And if it's not out, when is it out? And where can people get it? So the book is not out yet. Basically what we're doing is every book you could buy individually as a book, but we're also releasing a audio video course with it. So right now the book's complete, but we're wrapping up the filming of the course. So um, once that's out, it's going to be available at trainingthinktank.com. And if anyone was interested in like following that, they could just look up training think tank on Instagram. That's like our biggest content feeds. That's where the book would be announced. Um, that one, the book is done, wrapping up filming. So we're hoping maybe in the next two months or so, the energy system course will be released. And is it, is it you or Max that does the videos? Um, so the energy system course, I wrote the entire book. And then Kyle Ruth is the one speaking on the video. Cool. And we work together on that content. He has a pretty extensive background. He was a... um like near Olympic caliber swimmer. He's uh, has like a master's in physiology. So he's like a pretty knowledgeable dude in that regard yeah. as well. I heard Kyle when he did the drug episode with the guys from the muscle, my muscle. Oh yeah. And like, he was like, yeah, you know, did a bit of pharmacology as well as biochemistry. He's like, this guy is a fucking genius as well. Uh, so what, what, yeah, your fucking undergrad, what was your original degree into it was in? So it's like the longest name for a degree ever because it was interdisciplinary, but it was biochemistry, molecular and cellular biology was the full name. Yeah, because you were saying that you were like just stuck in the lab with dishes. You're like, fuck this, I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, all right, so your biggest lessons you've learned in your life, what have they been so far? Man, that is a deep question. I think I'll... It's not that deep. Biggest lessons in my life? So far, so far. I mean, you're going to be, so you're, you're going to live for a long time. All right. Um, I mean, I think just the biggest lesson is understanding that you probably don't know anything and like everything that you think is so concrete, you'll probably find out in 10 years that it's all bullshit anyway. Yeah. So I, I love it. Some people will get really depressed with it. I'm like, oh, it's so good because it keeps you curious all the time. So it's so much to learn. Like whenever I ask people, like, what do you, what do you read? What are you studying? And like, just like say, you know, kind of like you're, you're, like, like whatever fucking normal or average means, but just like you know, an average person like you meet, they think, "Oh, what do you read?" They go, "Oh, I don't really read books." And then just in my mind, like, "What are you doing with your life?" Yeah, like it's fu- it's funny because you say like a lot of people don't like that mindset. It kind of reminds me of like nihilism. Like I think that's like the most optimistic view ever. 
where it's like nihilism, it's like, oh, everything's meaningless. But to me, I'm like, well, if everything's meaningless, that means I could do whatever I want. Yeah, Not exactly. like in a sociopathic way, but like you create your own meaning for things. Mm. So I think in a similar way, it's like, well, if I acknowledge that I don't know anything, then that just means that I could always try and learn because I don't have to be tied to these concepts. Like I've never wanted to be someone like in academia, you'd have these professors where they spend 50 years learning about like one tiny little enzymatic pathway. And then what happens when their entire career gets challenged because something changes in the literature and now they've wasted <laughs> their entire life. I'm like, well, no, if I could just learn things broadly, try and apply it, yeah. then anytime things change, it's like, you know what? It's going to suck to change my paradigm, but the, the reason I laugh at that is because I have James Smith on this podcast every month and the amount of times that man just always says, you know, experience doesn't equal expertise because he's like, what happens when new knowledge comes into creation and it just absolutely destroys your current worldview? Yeah. So it's like so, And that's why like uh, experience doesn't equal expertise. You get people, he's in the field 30 years. It's like, yes, we've seen this uh, 30 years. Just this year we discovered this, which completely blows his whole research out of the water. Yeah. So he's fucked. But uh, yeah, I just I love that that experience is equal expertise because of new knowledge coming inspiration. But again, we need we need new knowledge only comes from old knowledge, you know. So it, it comes from current knowledge. But that's the whole yeah. point of evolution. But I do love that. Yeah, creating your own meaning. I love it. Creating your own meaning. Keep bringing greatness into creation, or keep keep creating. No, keep bringing greatness into creation. Yeah, I'm writing that. Keep bringing greatness yeah. into creation. Um. So that's your lessons. What would your top resources be and when i say when i say this this can be anything in terms of it can be a book or a course or a video and it doesn't have to be just limited like to arts or profession in terms of like um strength cognition or physical preparation or you know human performance it can be anything to do with anything yeah, and, so, anything you think that would be a benefit to people's lives basically yes yeah, so i think the way that i don't know if this would work for everyone but kind of the way that i've learned is I think because most of my time is spent thinking about like performance and health and these related things is I always have like people bomb me with emails like, oh, send me like a book list or like, what did you read to learn this stuff? And in my mind, I'm like, well, if you just read the same things that everyone reads, then you're just going to know the same shit that everyone knows. And if everyone did that, we would never make any progress so aaron davis said the same thing to me but i slightly disagreed with him because we can read the same thing but have two different perceptions of it that is true and i'm not going to argue with that at all um <laughs> like i do agree with you but um and i and I, I agree with you and aaron too i know yeah i, I know the point yeah you're yeah i mean obviously like we're all gonna have some overlapping interests like there are some things that are universal but i also think you need to start to get out of your field i remember one of the yeah. Like most influential things to me is in college, one of my biology professors was talking about Charles Darwin and he was like, who thinks that he studied biology for his whole life? And everyone's like, oh, he's a great biologist. And he's like, guess what? He barely read biology textbooks. Yeah, He was like an obsessive reader and he kept a list of every book he ever read. And what he actually did is he would go on a deep dive on a topic and read everything about it. And the main one would be biology. And then he would just go to a completely different topic, learn everything he could, and then bring it back to biology and be like, well, now what could I apply? And he just kept doing that. So I think one of the things that has been the most influential to me, I've obviously read a ton of training books, and I've probably read the same training books that everyone else has read, because it's like a little micro chamber. And a lot of them are fucking amazing books that I love. But a lot of the 
most important trading principles that I've learned are things that I like took from completely um, like unrelated fields or sources. So like one of the like biggest influential books for me in training is this book, I think is called The Closing Circle by Barry Commoner. And it's a book on environmental biology, mm. a field that I'm really not even that interested in. But I had ended up reading the book in in the book. Let me see if I could actually load up like what the talking points are. Yeah, yeah. Um never heard of that book. I love when I hear about things I don't know about. Yeah, so I actually wrote an article about it where I like kind of applied it. So in the book he talks about the four laws of ecology, which is law number one, everything is connected to everything else. The way that I kind of looped that to training is is like adaptation is when the body changes and it's not a prize. So adaptation in and of itself isn't inherently good or bad. Um, like nothing occurs in a vacuum. So if you adapt in one part, you're going to change in another way. Like there's no free lunch in biology. That idea that like everything must go somewhere. Training doesn't occur in a vacuum and we can't isolate it from the rest of our lives. Like nature knows best. And then there's no such thing as a free lunch. So when I read that book, I'd sat down, I like took a ton of notes and what it really um, came down to is it teaches you great training principles, like respect the synergy between all types of training. Like you can't throw a Russian squat cycle together with CrossFit main site work and then do Jack Daniels running formula. Like all of these things are conducted with an optimal balance of stress and recovery. Yeah. Um, you can't neglect the fundamentals. Like I get it. Like training is fun, but at the end of the day, it's like all these little things that really matter for long-term success. So like your stress, sleep, food, tissue quality in check. Yes. Then have at it and go like haul ass and train. But if not, you need to spend less time smashing weights and more time taking care of the basics. Like training is a privilege and not a right. Um, balancing intensity and recovery. It's like hard days are hard, easy days are easy. And you should be able to tell a dip, like a difference between the two. And then some of the other things like build and maintain instead of like the periodization flaws we were talking about before, like take the next logical step. Um, all of these different like training heuristics that have become so important in my coaching practice are things that I learned from an ecology book. So I think there's something to getting out of your field and just reading what's interesting to you. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Um, it's just so funny. I'm just actually flicking through upper lip and starting in. <laughs> yeah, there's two different ones. One says four is the optimal between 9% and one says seven. I think the original was seven. I think so. I think Louis one was one of four. It's been a while since so I looked at that too. Anyway, but that's savage. What was the name of that book again? Uh, the Closing Circle. The Closing Circle. Love it. Barry. Barry Commoner. Mind yeah. you, it's not like a great book by any means. It's but it's like the yeah, um, yeah. it's like it's, it's like a seminal book in ecology and environmental biology. Still. And it just has a lot of things that he says in there where you're like, man, this is like, if you just replace like the word training with biology throughout the book, like he's speaking like straight, like training truths. Yeah, yeah. But Stu McMillan said something. Uh, you know, Tony Holler asked Stu McMillan one day. So Stu is the head coach at Altus, and Tony yeah. is a is a high school spring coach up in. I think he's in. Uh, he's in Michigan, Illinois. He's up in that area. And uh, Tony asked Stu. He goes, "What what training books are you, are you reading these days?" And Stu goes, "I don't read training. I don't read training books anymore. But every book I read is a training book." 
<laughs> that's a great quote yeah yeah so like how he relates there. and Stu is like Stu reads very very uh, widely like it's one it's one common theme I've seen with all these guys who are seen as masters of their craft is that they're generous like they have a massive base of general knowledge that supports their their you know their mm-hmm. specific knowledge you know I, I, I see knowledge accru- uh, uh, accretion or accumulation very like training like uh, so like you know training you have your GPP and your SPP and then mm-hmm. sort of like your sports specific skill then so I, I see the same kind of like you were saying with Darwin is like so like if you want to like know a topic you go into your accumulation phase accumulate all the resources and then you mm-hmm. go to your intensification phase where like you're really getting into it now you know so accumulation phase is like getting the books and like the podcast and then the intensification is like actually studying it and then realization then is like it into action then like you know how can i apply this to my particular field or how can i apply this to my life like so i kind of see like like knowledge accumulation like that you have accumulation phase intensification realization mm-hmm. black periodization but we don't do that we do we do concurrent even though black periodization is kind of like if you read black periodization like this is concurrent he has maintenance levels in this it's an emphasis based model for designation trade francis anyway i'm rambling um Though the next one I was going to ask was that was your resources last three here. What would your top life advice be? And by the way, what, how old are you right now? I just turned twenty-five a few weeks uh, ago. So you're young. I'm yes. thirty-one. We're both both fairly young. You're younger. Um, you weren't born in the eighties, so I don't have I love. Wasn't. Calvin Harris, I got love for you. If you were born in the eighties, so unfortunately, Evan, I have no love for you. Oh man, I'm only joking, man. I've got love for you. Loads of love. After this fucking conversation, loads of love. Learned fucking so much. Um, what would your top life advice be? I know you're only 25, but 25 years on the planet. And if someone turned around to you and said, listen, give me some advice here. What would your top life Yeah, I mean, I have the general idea that... Don't be an asshole. Like, I can't really give someone life advice because I'm like, I don't have shit hey, figured out by any means. But listen, I, appara- apparently Jesus was going around doing his bit from 30 to 33, if you believe that book. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> the gas, yeah. All these people give out about like people pre thirty, like you know, like ah, all these people are life coaches. I'm like, well, Jesus was like apparently thirty, so. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I were to give life advice, I would just rip off someone's life advice that I think is poignant. So, yeah. I mean, I definitely, um, I guess more and more as I've been getting older, I tend to feel like I'm becoming like a little bit more like reclusive, or I want to disconnect from society more, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Not in like a weird like Unabomber kind of way, but uh, when I really think about it, like I just see the compulsions that I have and like the things that I want to spend so much time on, like social media and all this stuff. And like most of it is kind of like menial bullshit when I really think about it. So the people that like life advice, I think is like the best would be like Henry David Thrower, like Aldous Huxley, like these thinkers from 200 years ago. And when you kind of look at all of these thinkers that I really respect's messages, most of them are kind of just saying to stay in the present and like don't get caught up in the hype cycle and like don't suppress yourself with these things that are so addicting and like easy to let them take control of your life. So I don't think that's necessarily me giving people life advice as much as it is me saying like I need to listen to my own advice and like or listen to the things that I think hold true and I think most people could probably benefit from that as well if that's their thing like I really can't if someone wants to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and watch Dragon Ball Z all day I mean that's a great time so they should do that Henry David Thoreau, what a bloke. Um, I, I actually haven't read too much of Thoreau's work. I've read a lot of uh, Emerson. One of my favorite essays is Self-Reliance. I fucking, I, I'll read that and listen to that like multiple times a year. 
I think Emerson was a, and it's gas like like here we are fucking 2018 me and you chatting like over the internet and, and Zoom player and it's just like you read their material and it's still so poignant today like like it's just like they wrote that in the middle of the 19th century and like it's still so applicable to everyone today I read a book that messed me up pretty hard recently um the book is called amusing ourselves to death and the book was written i think in like the 70s or the 80s but and the guy who wrote it died around then but he basically predicts like in the year like 20 something like america's pre- uh, president is going to be like a tv host and like these are going to be the things in the general premise of the book is he wrote it before 1984 when like everyone was scared of that Orwellian like big brother government suppression but in the book he says everyone's scared of Orwell's prophecy that the thing that we hate the most is going to be what suppresses us but then he says but Aldous Huxley made a prophecy long ago in the 1920s that is going to be the one that holds true which is the thing that we love the most is going to be what suppresses us think to today no one is suppressing people no one's forcing you to be unhappy but we suppress ourselves with these things that are so addicting and that we love so much yeah. like social media is yeah. so much fun i love using social media but it makes me so fucking unhappy when i use it do you I still want to you're use ne- you're never on facebook eh? i don't see on facebook no, actually i don't use facebook but yeah yeah I really don't use it much anymore because that's something i'm aware of like on instagram i literally follow like eight people But like, that's something I'm aware of and I do need to control because if I don't keep myself in check, I could easily spend time like on social media and Googling things and getting lost in the internet. Dopamine. Yeah. Dopaminergic. I mean, you almost train your brain to be compulsive. I'm actually reading like a book right now on mental health and it's talking about how we train ourselves to have mental health issues and compulsions. And, um, that's just like a big thing for me because doing those things in the moment feels like a lot of fun, but it makes you less happy long-term. So that's just a lesson that I'm always trying to keep in mind just because I want to do something right now doesn't mean that it's actually good for me and that it will make me happy long-term. So I'm just trying to, obviously I can't give this life advice because I haven't been doing this my whole life. I've only been doing this for like a year or two or trying to even work on it for that long. But I think that's going to be a big thing for me in the future. That's a big thing. Someone's breaking into your house back there. Like someone's back there, are they? <laughs> I think um, my next door neighbor, I, I live in like a town home, so the houses are attached. Yeah. They're selling their house, and they're like painting the side of their house right now. So the workers keep like walking into my yard to like prop the ladder on <laughs> the side. My dog's is, is like... That, over is that an apartment you live in, is it? It looks very nice. Uh, it's a, it's like a town home. So it's yeah. like, um, it's just like houses that are attached to each other. It's cool. It looks lovely. Yeah, uh, I was going to say to you there, yeah, this, just going back to that, like about you, you just something you, the way you word it there and that it makes happy in the short term, but it makes it sort of depressed in the long term. Like that, according to, um, Gabor Mate, you know, so yeah, he's, he's like an expert in addiction. Like he says, that's basically what the definition of addiction is, is that like, it's something that you do and crave, but you do, you even know in the act of doing it while you, you love it in the moment, you know, that afterwards you're going to regret it so much. And like, 
it's it's sort of a concept addiction is sort of been a concept that i've been wrestling with as well and meditating on over the last few months and it's kind of been i go through these phase where I, I get really deep into just certain areas in terms of just thinking about them like so for a certain time in my life it was like about death and uncertainty and then at another time it was uh you know about like um imposter syndrome and then like another time it could be about um um, there was imposter syndrome and then what was the other one I was thinking of something else I got deep in but death and uncertainty was one imposter syndrome was another one but this thing just even with like addiction like it's kind of like when does it when does something change from being beneficial in your life to detrimental and it got me thinking like you know about exercise so kind of go back to what we spoke about in terms of like you know I don't know if we mentioned this online we just spoke before offline like when you're in that overly parasympathetic state and like you know, like I am fucked, and I have a problem here. Like I know that I'm using, I'm, I'm using uh, exercise as, as a medication. Like, mm-hmm. like I'm addicted to it, and it, it is being detrimental because I feel like shit for the other fucking twenty three hours of the day, basically, mm-hmm. outside of that one hour I train or whatever it is. And it's like, uh, but when I do it, and when I'm in the act of doing it, I feel great. But then, like obviously, the withdrawal afterwards or after I do it is fucking brutal, and it's just kind of like. You know, when, when, like, you know, when does something that, like, it's just kind of becoming more conscious of, like, to cross that line of, listen, like, exercise, obviously, it's like anything, like, the difference between medicine and a poison is purely just down to the dosage. And I think just, like, so many of us, like, have certain habits in our lives that we, we probably, if we were able to step back and just, like, just become more centered aware we realize this and this is not fucking beneficial but yeah the just the drawn addiction to it is just so fucking strong like so i'm just i'm just i'm fascinated with addictions and you know and then when it gets to exercise like where does that line go from right this is beneficial this is detrimental because even okay there, there there is times right and the reason why like some people might say well that's obvious obviously if you're doing it you don't feel well or, or you feel like you know mentally like you're don't enjoy training but like there is times like where if you don't exercise, you will be a bollocks the rest of the day. Whereas, it, you know, some people say I need to train because I, I will be a better person the rest of the day. So like, is it still beneficial even if you're a little bit fatigued from it? You know, you know, kind of way it's like it's a real gray area. Just yeah. Like where something goes from being, again, beneficial to a detriment. It's just an area that I've thought about an awful lot. But yeah, I go down these deep rabbit holes like death and uncertainty was a huge one for me. And then imposter syndrome was another one. They're big ones. And I've thought then a lot about like this sort of just addictions and behavior and i'll let you speak now a sec but i think as well with that addiction like so many people like again whatever fucking normal or average means but the lay person when they hear addiction they always just think drugs and drink and it's just like everyone has an addiction in their life like so like my mother is obsessed and addicted to cleaning it's a coping mechanism that's what these all are they're coping mechanisms people like their coffee their food their routines their religions their political beliefs like they can all take the forms of addictions and really it goes back to coping mechanisms and now that gets me into a rabbit hole of uncertainty because when i met it when i was meditating on uncertainty and death like so like the biggest question every single human being has whether they really consciously think about it on a moment-to-moment basis or it's just something that's in the back of their mind but they never really have sat down and thought about it is death like that is the biggest uncertain question everyone has in their life like what the fuck is next and to to fill that void or to get away from that fear or to not have to think about it what people do as coping mechanisms they fill their lives with certainties so like you know, with routines or anything. And like, it's different for everyone. So some people like they have a really strong political belief or it could be a religious belief 
or just an ideology like they believe in like and that gives them like something to hang on to like it's, co- it's their safety blanket and it gives them a coping mechanism for other people then it is like exercise drink drugs food addiction sex addiction whatever it is you're just your root your day routine addiction like it's funny i go for a walk most mornings so that's kind of and i see this you see the same people every morning just every morning and she's like everyone's yeah, just going to the same thing i suppose like i'm the prime one i'm doing the same thing so i can't say much but it's just kind of funny how the human species is in terms of its brain and its behavior. Yeah. It's funny. One of those people is probably like on a podcast right now talking shit about you saying the same thing. Like I go on a walk every morning. There's always the same guy there. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> like some, some of the stuff you're saying, like those are things that like, it's weird. It's like, I mean, definitely just talking to you. I'm like, I feel like we have a lot of similar tendencies. Yeah. Big time. And it's things that, like, I always thought, I'm like, man, no one else, like, wrestles with the same stuff, too. Like, it's fucking crazy. I'm like, I feel like I go through, like, existential crises on, like, a regular basis. All the time, bud. But then you start talking to people about it, and you realize that, like, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people wrestle with those same things. So I'm like, is that just, like, innate to being a human, or is it, like, a mismatch between our environment and how we're living? Because if it's so common, I'm like, that can't be... A, like the right adaptation that like we all just ended up with it yeah yeah big time for sure but uh yeah no it's i i again i go down fucking deep rabbit holes it, it's uh and again i suppose i go down deep rabbit holes and i said it in a way that uh, like i'm thinking that no one else does but again you don't know because again one it's because probably we, we never really like you never really get into these conversations like on a day-to-day basis unless like you just fucking, I don't know, you, you just happen to, they're just not, they're just not your average fucking daily yeah. conversations. I suppose, again, as you said, like, you know, you're probably similar to me that like you kind of keep to yourself on a day-to-day basis. So like how much interaction do you have to actually have with someone with these sort of conversations? Yeah. But I like, I've been lucky in terms of like some of the material and people that have influenced me. So like I've spoken about this at length on one of my podcasts. So like, like I always envision some people who listen to these and they roll their eyes going, oh, I've heard this a thousand times from, but you haven't heard it. So like I've been, I've been very influenced by Joseph Shilton Pierce, Jock Fresco and Bruce Lipton because, you know, what those three gentlemen really sort of helped me appreciate was like how huge the environment is in shaping an organism. And um, what, what that made me appreciate then was that everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. And like Bruce Lipton sort of opened my eyes to epigenetics and because kind of that's what his book Biology Belief is all about, like, you know, and just Fresco and 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 Joseph Shilton Pierce, their work sort of kind of further consolidated, like, you know, the environment is huge. And again, like a big thing then with us as humans is that, right, while the environment is massive on an organism's expression, what really separates us from all other species is that we can choose to perceive our environment. So like Victor Frank, you know, the, the difference between us and animals is that between stimulus and response we we get the choice to choose our response to the stimulus so like once i became aware of that and i started to appreciate that everyone everything is aware for a reason you know it's helped me to try and develop higher levels of empathy uh compassion empathy understanding and discernment and that then has allowed me to be able to really always stand back and ask why so like 
for instance, like when I said I go down deep rabbit holes, what was on my mind as I said that is like, like I'm the type of person that wants to like go down the dark hole of like rape and murder and, and like all that stuff, like you know, just like war and just the most he- horrendous things humans mm-hmm. do, because most of us are just too afraid to go down there. I think a lot of time people are too afraid to go down there because they might be afraid of what they'll discover about themselves early. Do you know that kind of way? Whereas yeah. like I, I like to go down there and just always ask why, like like. There's a re- that's why I'm, I'm loving this book Behave by Sapolsky and the way he wrote that book is the way I would have wrote it so he's, he's, he goes from the micro back to the micro so he's like I don't know if you've read the book but he, he has a, a TED talk too that basically summarizes the book but he's like here's the behavior and what we're going to do is this we're going to go one second before that behavior happens now we're going to go minutes to hours before that, that behavior happens now we're going to go days to days to months now we're going to go months to years now we're going to go to when you were an adolescence now we're going to go to when you're an embryo now we're going to go back to evolution and he's like all these things have led to that behavior in that moment in time which i think is a great way to explain because exactly how i would have seen it because i'm like you in terms of i'm a universalist like everything is connected it's so funny because when you first get into like strength and condition evidence or like this whole field you're like all right yeah sets and reps and like back squats and deadlifts and then like you're like oh look there's this like nutrition piece over here that's interesting and then you're like, oh look there's this physical therapy rehab piece and then you're like oh look at yeah, this there's a functional medicine piece oh no there's this like psychological spiritual piece and then you just keep going down these fucking rabbit holes and these doors and then it's like you eventually get to this other side and then you just you just like it's like you pop out this like vagina or something just like it's all connected and just like it's the universe but uh sorry going back to appreciating like epigenetics and the environment and the fact that humans can choose how they perceive their environments against and that, that led me to have higher levels of compassion empathy and and um understanding discernment it's allowed me then to all step back and ask why like you know like no one's born into the world being a murderer or rapist or fucking having hate or love in their heart like all that shit's fucking learnt and it's you know, again, and it's it's how we perceive those environments that we learn from. So it's just, yeah, man, that, that's that's where I'm at. And it's, uh, I'm similar to yourself. I'd say we resonate an awful lot, a lot, a lot of that stuff. I'd say we meditate a lot, an awful lot of the same stuff. Because as you said, like, you have these existential crises and you're like, does anyone else think about this shit? So it's, it's gas. Uh, two more questions for you and then we'll wrap yep. up. Um, okay, Elon Musk. The, he's, he's kind of on everyone's agenda lately because he fucking he smoked a fucking joint and like uh, people were going mad we just relax people but anyway uh, Elon Musk has managed to get us off earth and uh, you decide you know what? I'm going to fucking leave uh, I'm going to spend one more year and I'm going to leave how would you spend that last year on earth uh, man like I feel like a mix of a few things because my instant reaction is like oh, I just want to spend the whole thing with like my family and like doing that. But the reality is I don't really do that on a regular basis. Like I don't live in the same state as any of my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, if that was truly my number one priority, then I should be doing that already. So I feel like that's kind of a cop-out answer. I think in reality, I'd probably just want to like travel to like all the places in the world I can with my girlfriend because she likes to travel too. And she is very similar. Um, kind of like perspectives and thoughts as I do. And I feel like I would just want to like try and see as many, not like earthly experiences, but like human experiences as I can. Because if I'm leaving the earth, I'm assuming is this leaving forever? Am I coming back to earth? No, you've won your and that's it. You're not coming back. All right. So I'm never coming back to earth. I don't want to have like a false view of like, what it is to like live here in my head. Like I know um, 
I've done like a bit of traveling and you see how other cultures live, but I haven't been anywhere like so far out of my realm of perception. Most of the countries I've been to, they live pretty similar to us, but I know like talking to my girlfriend, she's been to some third world countries and has spent time there. And I hear some of the things that she's saying and I'm like, that doesn't jive with my picture of the earth. Like, I don't think that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. So I would want to try and like see all of that. And then like when I do go to this other planet and like say I meet people on that planet, like I could tell them like what our human culture is and like understand it. It's funny that you asked that because I – have you ever – um do you know who C.S. Lewis is? yeah. So, um, have you ever read like the space trilogy, like out of the silent planet and like those books? I haven't read those books, but I'm aware of, the, of who C.S. Lewis is. Man. So that's kind of like what the premise of those books are. It's like, you don't realize how fucking wacky our civilization is until you've experienced something completely different on another planet. Yeah. So I feel like if I'm going to leave earth and I'm never going to see it again, like why not actually experience what's on earth like i almost think the idea of like going to this other planet so we could like learn all about it and do all these things like when i really think about that i'm like yeah that's fucking awesome but it's like we really don't even know our own planet like we haven't explored the ocean people are like oh we could terraform other planets if earth is going to get destroyed if we have that technology why don't we just terraform earth yeah so i'm like i feel like I know so little about this place that I live, even the city that I live in. Like I haven't even been to oh, half man. the cool places here. You're preaching to the fucking choir here. The amount of times I have friends from America come to Ireland, they're like, oh yeah, we went to the Cliffs of Mar and we went here and we went there. And it's like, yeah, I'm uh, 31 years in this planet and I haven't seen any of that in my own country yet. Dude, I've never been to the Empire. Or, um, I've never been up the Statue of Liberty. I lived an hour from it growing up. Yeah, yeah. But again, kind of go back to what we spoke about earlier on, like with, with, with William, um, with sorry, with uh, Henry David Thoreau and with Ralph Waldo Emerson, it's like, um, you know, like when you peel it all back, it really is about being at peace within yourself, like you know, because I think a lot of us again, we try to like externalize our happiness, we try to get fulfillment from the external world, realizing that listen, it's an internal process, because you get a lot of people like 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 I don't know about like in in Ireland anyway, a big thing here in Ireland is a lot of people just like leaving, like come to Australia or America, and they're like I just fucking I hate Ireland, I need to leave. It's like you've never been one mile outside your town in Ireland anyway, so you haven't even seen Ireland itself. But it's kind of like they're just always trying to run away, or they think if I can get there, I'll be happier, you know. When again, realizing that happiness, it's an internal process, not an external one. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's it's like, because a lot of people say, oh, I'll just travel around and obviously you want to travel around and see the world. But again, happiness, it's it's a it's a self-actualization process. Really. And I say that, I'm saying this, Evan, as a person who is as just, who is as just fucked up as everyone else with, with my own demons that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and my own struggles and like who's currently always working on the process and that's what it is too it's not a destination to it like i think a lot of people think that and this is my current belief and also use the word current because i'm always very because again my one dogmatic belief is not to have a dogmatic belief how about that from oxymoron but uh like it's like it's a it like life is just a continual process like so there's days i also say there's days where like your self-love and tolerance for yourself are going to be higher than on other days like so it's just a continual process like self-actualization isn't like oh i'm self-actualized i've reached the pinnacle of life now i can just leave it's like that's it's a journey and and like we were talking about periodization where dynamic organisms are changed on a moment basis so life is a journey right to the last breath 
but yeah that's interesting so you'd, you'd like to i like that concept of getting more perspective of the earth so that when you left you could be you could definitely you know obviously for yourself and your own fucking state of mind to have a better picture of earth and then also be able to articulate it better to the, the aliens you're going to meet uh last one we're going to dinner and you can invite five people and these five people can be dead or alive who would you bring to this dinner and why well shit that's a hard one that is a fucking um, you're gonna bring that artist what's the artist's name again oh is this from man muscle yeah uh esau andrews esau andrews i must remember I must get to send me on his work because i've been meaning to look it up since that go ahead um yeah five sure. people and you, and you can bring your girlfriend but she doesn't count as one oh, of perfect. five right because i was gonna invite her okay so, so you still have five yeah i feel like i'd invite I feel like since we've talked about him so much i'd be an asshole not to invite thoreau so henry david thoreau is coming to dinner it's funny my dog who uh, he was actually just walking through here a minute ago um, we call him Thor, but our dog's name is Thoreau. <laughs> Deli. So that's like a funny, everyone always thinks we named our dog after the jacked Viking. And we're like, no, nah, we named him after a dude that died 200 years ago. It's gas. Um, interesting people. I'd probably invite Aldous Huxley. He would be a cool one. So we got Thoreau and Huxley so far. Nice. Um, I feel like we should invite like some kind of futurist like Elon Musk, not because I'm like a huge fan of him or anything. Oh, Ra- Ra- Ralph and uh, and uh, Lockton would hate that. <laughs> They're like Elon Musk is barred from our show in terms That's of that, I- in terms of mentioning him as as a guest or as someone to bring to dinner, not not as a guest. Yeah. Show. Yeah, like I don't. I honestly, I don't think he's like a particularly like interesting person. But I'm like, he is so much the opposite of the other two people. That yeah, I feel like yeah. just hearing them argue with each other would be pretty entertaining. Yeah. Um, and then I think I'd have to finish it with like some kind of like artist that I like. Maybe I think I'd have to pick like one of my current favorite bands, Silent Planet. I'd probably pick their vocalist, Garrett Russell, because he's a pretty cool, interesting dude. Um, then last person. So we've two dead, two alive. Too dead, too alive. Jake, to balance it out, we have to get some kind of zombie to finish it off. Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein. We can butt him. Um, man, that's a hard question. I wonder why his fucking moxie reasons would show out Frankenstein. Maybe we'll invite him. Let's invite <laughs> Frankenstein. No, 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 no. Cop out. Um, see, it's weird. Cause, like, I feel like I'm like, oh, I want to invite all these super interesting people. But at the same time, I'm like, this might be the least entertaining dinner ever because it's just yeah, going to be like a bunch yeah. of weird conversations. So I'm stuck between like, I'm just going to invite five of my homies and we're going to have like a badass meal and hang out. Do you know, it's funny you say that. Um, I still want you to answer your fifth person because Ben House, like I asked him and Ben House just goes, like he was like my family. He's like, I don't want to spend time with, he's like, that's who I want to be with the most. So he, it was like, that's fair. Because he was like, I get, you know, I hear these questions. People are always like naming all these, like, you know, oh, this person and that famous person. And Ben House was like, not family. See, yeah. that's what I think. But I'm like, if I'm getting the chance to put together this dinner that could other, never happen otherwise, it's like, 
I eat dinner with the people that I want to eat dinner with the most, like every day. Yeah, so, like, uh, but again, again, like everyone's priorities and core values are different. Because again, we've been shaped by different life experiences. So for me, like, I'd be like, like, don't get me wrong. Of course, I love my family, but like, no, they're not the five people I want to bring to this dinner. Is Goku from Dragon Ball Z like a sufficient answer for this? He'd be a pretty cool dude. I don't have a clue who that is. Oh no. Okay, that was a '90s kid reference. Um. Well, this is your dinner. You can bring whoever you want. Right, fifth person. Ah, oh, man. Because I feel like when I'm thinking of people, I'm thinking of like ideas that they had that are super interesting. But I'm like, in all reality, these people that I picked could be the least entertaining or like fun people to have conversations with. Yeah, yeah. So maybe let's go someone for like pure entertainment value. Because it, like, it is actually funny you mention that because I think like I'm even thinking about the guests for my dinner. Like so, I think the ones I said because someone asked me there recently, mine were um, Joseph Jordan Pierce, Martin Luther King, Jesus. And by the way, I'm I'm not one bit religious. I just like if Jesus was real or not real, but the entity that was Jesus, uh, Lincoln. And I actually think I said Paul Check, but like. You wonder, like, would there be much crack out with them lads? Yeah, you know, just thinking, like, would would there be any crack? Like, because you know, Martin Luther kind of had that somber voice, but I'd say he'd be good crack. Yeah. Paul Check would definitely just be quirky as fuck. Joseph Pierce is a lovely man. Apparently, Lincoln had a good sense of humor, and then like, I'm, I'd just be plaguing Jesus to do miracles. Go on, go on, turn the water into wine. Let me see. Man, I want to get drunk, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like going with that jesus tangent i'm like yeah that would be a pretty cool person to have at dinner i would probably have to say jesus for the last one then yeah you're just like do you realize how much confusing you have cars in the world <laughs> yeah like i wonder if like you could talk to him and be like just clarify what you meant like yeah yeah so many people like say it's this so many people say it's that i'm like it would be pretty cool to be like yeah, what I, are your exact opinions i could just seem like picking up a bible going um just so people know, I, I wrote none of this and it completely misinterpreted what I was trying to say. Well, also, like, Jesus like, the most punk rock figure ever in history. Like, yeah, yeah. He was basically, like, a political anarchist. Yeah, he was badass. Yeah, so he would be a pretty cool dude. I feel like we'd, act, I honestly feel like we'd be pretty good friends if I met him. Yeah, and, and I'd love it too. He'd sit down and be like, I knew you were going to be tanned. There was no way you would be that white if you lived that part of the world. I just knew it. I knew it. You look like a BG. But Jesus. Good man. I wonder what his moxie reading would be like. My God, he's off the charts. Yeah, he want to be. Son of God. Come on. Uh, man, listen, this has been unbelievable. And uh, first of all, I appreciate putting up my weirdness and my fucking just basically just my rants it's it, uh, as I, uh, I said to james Drill one time it's like i'm healing i'm healing like when people like just keep talking it's like they need this they're healing um so i appreciate you being patient man your knowledge today ah uh, savage like i'm gonna so enjoy going back listening to this like just like re-listen to your answers on the periodization and the energy systems because like i learned a fucking ton there so it was great i would absolutely love to have you back on um, oh, of course, man. anytime yeah so i'll just wrap this up we'll say goodbye offline so for the listeners i'll have everything linked up um for uh, uh evan as he said he's not a he's not a social media guy so uh evan if someone did want to contact you is there any way like do you want people to contact you yeah i mean if they wanted to contact me my email is evan e-v-a-n-p-e-i-k-o-n or no it's actually just evan e-v-a-n <laughs> at training think tank.com great Great. completely fucked that up and if they did want to 
contact me on social media. I literally just post pictures with my dog and girlfriends, but it is life underscore of underscore PEI, like a play on the Life of Pi movie. Yeah, yeah. And I think the of the O is a zero. So, so if you, for whatever reason, wanted to contact <laughs> me on there, you could check out pictures of my adorable puppy. So if you want to see pictures of Toro and uh, Evan, you just go there. And what's your girlfriend's name? You never you, you give me your dog's name, but not your girlfriend's name. Girlfriend is Raina. Raina. Yes. Raina, nice name, nice name, beautiful yeah, name. Cool Raina. Raina. Yeah. Okay, uh, really appreciate that. And for all the listeners, uh, another fantastic episode, and I'm definitely going to have this gentleman back on. But for now, uh, take care, be well, and as I say at the end of every show, stay strong. Mm-hmm.